Bonzilla presents Star Trek. Each week we warp speed into the world of Star Trek. This week, the original era of Star Trek films comes to a close as a clone of Picard tries to destroy the galaxy. It's 2002's Star Trek Nemesis. everybody once again it is time for bondzilla presents i am nick i'm will and we are here today uh it's been a, i mean we've, we've gone through sort of you know the end of our bond and our uh godzilla eras originally and we we have talked all about all the king kong films but that wasn't really like the end of an era type of thing but uh we're back to talking about sort of an, an end of an era uh in in one of our series and yes we do have more star trek films to go after this but uh we are talking about sort of the end of this sort of this original run of of star trek films this like original continuity of films uh that that goes all the way from the uh, you know the motion picture to now the movie we're talking about today star trek uh, nemesis from from 2002 well, it's always fun with, and it was kind of very similar to talking about the MonsterVerse movies versus the other Kong and Godzilla films, because, you know, it's just the difference between talking about the ones that have more of an established legacy versus, like, you know, the movies that just came out, like, in the past couple years, really. Yeah. So it's like, after this, we're kind of more so litigating frankly movies that are still being debated and talked about like after this you're into the the kelvin timeline and jj's like star trek and that that's still getting litigated today right yeah i i don't remember the last time anybody's talked about uh nemesis so this is that that's why it's fun to kind of like talk about these because then it's like really you, you you get to have a little bit more fun with it as and because I feel like once we start talking about the JJ ones, it's going to be like, okay, now we're just putting our voices in the noise. Yes. <laughs> that is well, discourse. It'll be. But that's why this is fun. It will be interesting also to go after like those movies now that we, again, like that's what's fun about this podcast is going through the, the Kelvin films uh, after we've done all of these movies. But again, it is interesting to reflect on, on, on this sort of original series of star trek films as something that has been uh an anchor of paramount for so long like since 1979 when we first talked about you know in that whole saga of getting that first movie made and it has been a very consistent thing uh in the film verse and in paramount's in in their library since then i mean you know they've been basically making these films non non-stop uh since that original 1979 release but it but it is interesting to kind of to see this this transition of the Star Trek franchise, uh, even seven years before uh, 2009's Star Trek, as you know, this is the the last of the Next Generation films, and again, we've talked about the end of the original series, and now we get to talk about sort of how, at least for this time period, right, this is the this was the end of 
the the next generation series all the way up until you know the the recent Picard series, which does interestingly enough deal with some of the fallout mm-hmm. of this movie and and does yeah. have specific references to the events of this film. Also, uh, before the JJ movies, this was the only Star Trek movie I had seen. Oh wow! So that that's why it was interesting, and I hadn't seen it, and this was around. This was probably like right when it got like home release is when I saw it. So mm-hmm. I I hadn't seen this movie in a long time. Yeah, I haven't I haven't touched this since my original like 2018 marathon of everything and uh it, it's a very interesting film to revisit and I'm I'm very eager to kind of dig into some of its intricacies mm-hmm. uh including its production. So if uh, without further ado, I think let's get into the making of Star it. Trek Nemesis. Uh, So one thing I want to note right away is this movie comes out in 2002. Uh, The last time we saw a Star Trek movie was Star Trek Insurrection in 1998. Uh, That four-year gap is the largest between Star Trek entries uh, up until this point. Obviously, we're just about to hit a bigger one after this movie. Uh, But the reason for that was essentially that uh, Rick Berman was still in charge of these at Paramount. And Paramount, again, was sort of focused in on expanding their mission impossible franchise which was their new kind of new hot toy the new new kid on the block for them and really for berman it's just that there was no real solid immediate idea to go to that there wasn't something that they were very eager to do and 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 it's not not something solid enough that they were able to go into production basically right away and a lot of those ideas we talked about last time that berman had for insurrection before that film sort of changed up the you know the clone of Picard involving the Romulans potentially Data's death, like we're still buzzing around his head, but there was no real solid means of, of putting those all together. Uh, and it wasn't until essentially Brent Spiner himself came to Berman and discussed again the, the possible death of Data and, and sort of talked out the movie and talked about the potential ideas that sort of the genesis of Nemesis as a film sort of started to come up. And it really, the genesis of Nemesis, the genesis of Nemesis. Um, That was good. I like that. I know. I don't know. End the the show here. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if we've ever talked about the genesis joke, but I don't know if we should. I think we're just going to move on from that. Yeah, I don't know. We definitely never did, but... It's a Terminator joke. That's long story mean. short, Terminator Genesis for a long time, me and Will, up to this day, we just call it Terminator Genesis because it has the Y in there. Well, because it was also a fairly mocked title. title so yes. That's why. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and then it was Brett Spiner who brought on his friend, uh, John Logan, into the discussions. And that's where the actual screenplay of Nemesis comes into play. Now, John Logan a fairly notable screenwriting name, especially what he's done after this movie. But at the time, he was hot off the heels of his Oscar-nominated script for Gladiator. Uh, John Logan was a former Chicago playwright who had just transitioned into the screenwriting game and, again, had gotten his Oscar nomination for, uh, for Gladiator. And so he was kind of one of the hot new names in town. And obviously, after this, he goes on to be a very notable screenwriting name as he writes you know, Hugo and the aviator and for us, Skyfall uh, and Spectre were both, were both penned by him. Uh, So something that was very notable for, for that. And and so Logan was again, a new name. He was again, uh, a noted kind of Star Trek, you know, aficionado 
in terms of knowing the world and knowing the characters and knowing the lore, but also was eager to kind of try to do something different with it. So Logan, Spiner, and Berman developed this story. Again, based off all of, you know, Spiner's desire to kind of kill off Data because he felt he was aging out of the role and, and Berman's ideas of the Picard clone and using the Romulans, which is, again, it's something that's never really been truly explored. The Romulans were still the most mysterious race of the, the classic Star Trek uh, villains or, or I, an, know, antagonists. I, I thought about this while watching this movie. And then I was like thinking, what do I know about the Romulans? And about my knowledge goes to is just bad, bad uh, Vulcans. Right. So, yeah. So really the only truly established lore with the, with the Romulans, there were, were some stuff is that they're very warlike race, much like the Klingons. Um, and that they were at some point an offshoot of, the Vulcans that the Vulcans, you know, went to logic and peace, whereas the, the, the Romulan side of Vulcan society were more into war. And a lot of it, it's funny that a lot of the stuff that was going to be established about the Romulans actually kind of went to the Klingons because as we remember in Star Trek, the motion picture that, um, you know, the, the Klingons were kind of used in that way. And then the original villains of Star Trek three were going to be the Romulans and so that's why they have the warbird and everything and sort of that stuff. But eventually the Klingons were put into that role because they were more well-known. And so a lot of the original warlike stuff that the Romulans were kind of known for eventually made its way into kind of Klingon society. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Romulans still had a lot to play. And also the fact that Romulus as a planet and as an actual society had only really been visited once in one of the shows that the actual planet itself had never really been visited because of the neutral zone angle that the you know the federation never gets into you know bromulan space so they felt they had a lot of to play with there so logan kind of concocts the, the screenplay uh based on all the kind of spiners and berman's idea and he makes a deal that he gets full full rights to the script and he's going to be the basically the only writer on this movie because he's such a hot commodity he kind of has that leverage uh, so this movie is kind of being put together in that way. And Berman starts thinking about directors. And obviously the first choice in everybody's mind, uh, you know, it's just because of the convenience is acting Jonathan Frakes. So once again, take the role of director. Um, and, you know, he had the big success with First Contact. Insurrection was still a success, though, much lower than First Contact was. But Berman was looking for a new direction. He was looking for a, 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 just, again, just a, a something of a refresh because he felt that, you know, insurrection, one of the problems is that it was just everything was too familiar. And it was and and really, you know, Berman had considered that they really hadn't had a true outsider into the franchise since Nicholas Meyer originally took that, you know, Wrath of Khan job. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because obviously after that, you had Nimoy directing, you had Shatner directing, you had Meyer coming back, you know, and he was kind of a more, more familiar. And then with the Next Generation films, you had the first film being done by, you know, one of the, you know, directors of the show and the other two films being by Frakes. So Berman's excuse for not asking Frakes was Frakes was at this time working on another film, the Nickelodeon films classic clock stoppers yes clock stoppers where they make uh, the clock stop yes uh so <laughs> i remember that movie i saw that movie in theaters so frakes was directing that at the time 
uh, and working on that. And, and Frakes has said since then that he would have made time for Trek because he always would have, and he would have been making the movie anyway. But Berman basically in his head said, oh, he's working on Clock Stoppers. He's working on this other film for Paramount. He won't have the proper time to get into the movie, get into, you know, the pre-production. So we're going to go a different direction. But Frakes was already like, well, I would have been available for the movie. So I would have made, made the time. So Berman first is like, well, maybe we can get that shakeup we need from, from Meyer himself. So the idea was maybe getting Nicholas Meyer to try a next generation series. And so he did contact Meyer's people. Meyer was basically like, I I'm always interested. I just need full script control. Like I had on star Trek six. And they already gave the contract to Logan at full script control. So that basically was non-negotiable. It's out the window. So then Berman did toy with this idea of asking LeBar Burton to direct because it's like, you know, again, maybe something easy. You know, we, we'd already been projected in the previous films by Ridley, the Ridley Scotts and, and, and those types of directors that maybe not a big director would be, you know, interested. So maybe we just kind of keep it in-house, maybe just shake it up with a different cast member. But eventually it's Paramount themselves who uh, select um, Stuart Braid uh, to be the director of this movie. Now, Stuart Braid uh, was a very notable um, editor for many, many years in the industry. Uh, got his first, not big break, but it got his, you know, a very much an attention as a director, or as an editor when he helped edit Superman in 1978. Uh, but since then had directed the Lethal Weapon movies, had Die Hard 2, direct, uh, Demolition Man, and he had just sort of went into uh, directing. And he made his directorial debut a couple of years earlier in 1990. Um, uh, sorry, in 1996 with Executive Decision, uh, which was sort of an action movie starring Kurt Russell and Holly Berry and Steven Seagal, but had big attention when he got the coveted director's chair of the fugitive spinoff U.S. Marshals. Uh, starring Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, at this time, uh, Braid had a relationship with Paramount because he came in to do unedited edits of both Mission Impossible 2 and the first Tomb Raider movie. Uh, so he was kind of in good graces with the uh, Paramount executives at the time, and U.S. Marshals was a success uh, coming off of its, you know, successor of the fugitive and, you know, Braid was kind of maybe, Hey, maybe this is the guy yeah, next guy to transition from editing to directing. Uh, so Paramount basically was like, Hey, let's get this guy on board for, for the job. And Braid was interested in trying something new for him. He is two other films had very much been like, you know, action films relating government stuff, you know, and this was very much very different sci-fi, already established characters. Even with the U.S. Marshals movie, yes, he had established characters with Tommy Lee Jones's fugitive U.S. Marshal, but he had a lot of freedom to what to do with the movie and the characters were. This was going to be a different challenge for him, uh, and he kind of wanted to put his own sort of spin on it, and he thought that the script was, was interesting enough that he would, he would take the job. Uh, so from there it's time for us to kind of get, you know, the, the script finished up and the cast in place. Now it's interesting with the cast of this film. And we also, talk before you get into the cast, there are two really only like, we'll get into the whole cast. There's really only two castings in this movie that actually matter as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Yeah. One is the major one, which when I first watched the movie, of course, like I, I, 
no, but I didn't know. Like, no, and then now no. you yeah. retrospectively, you're like, oh, fuck, I didn't. Yeah. That, that's crazy that it's him. There's another casting that when the credits rolled, I was like, wait, what? And then I look back and I'm like, that's who that was. And then it all clicked for me. So I think do you, I think you may know. Yes, I'm I, talking I, about. I okay, was all right. So I, I was. I, I mean, <laughs> I was going to make sure I was going to see what your reaction was because there was I, one where I was like, "Oh, that is him!" Like, yeah. okay. So I just wanted to make that very clear. So, very much what's interesting about the the regular cast, our regular next generation cast, is obviously most of them very much on board. Uh, Stewart now has even more pull as an actor in terms of getting a big contract because he, at this point, is Professor X. He has done the first X-Men movie. It's a big deal for him. Uh, so he kind of gets very much the contract he deserves. Um, Frank's again, he's like, I'm just going to do Trek. Spiner is very happy because his character, you know, he, the death that he wants to give his character is finally coming to fruition. And he is a major force on the storytelling of this movie. Can I bring up that one thing? Because that's actually a really important thing I think it is to bring up. The fact that, because at this point, you're right. Like he, he's Professor X. Yes, Professor Stewart, yes. And we often talk about how, because notoriously for the fans, because I know the fans like to get to know our weird opinions. But you and I, and forgive me if I'm talking for you, but we're not, the politest way to put it is like, we're not the biggest X-Men fans. We're, like, no, we, we like it just because it's part of Marvel Comics and yeah. we, we like them that way. But there are diehard X-Men fans and we are not them. Mm -hmm. But you and I have often said that the X-Men films are one of those films that have casted actors into a role that are so iconic that the, mo the movies kind of basically have coasted off of these castings in many respects. And Patrick Stewart being Professor X is one of those, like... It's, that, it's perfect. It's so good. Yeah. So I just wanted to bring that up because this guy is in, like, a huge... And also consider that X-Men, this is when the superhero craze... This was, it's, like, one of those one-two punches that started the superhero craze. It's just, yes, it, I it's, know... I know Blade came out before, <laughs> but... But the, but the X-Men Spider-Man thing, yes. like... That was the real, especially kind of coming off the heels of those 90s Batman movies, which had their own ups and downs. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that Marvel was in the game with these two huge, you know, things. And, and also, you know, Ang Lee's Hulk is around here somewhere too, um, which is its own thing. But Oh, yeah. Yes, it is. Uh, but you no, know, this is like, you I mean, people are still going crazy over these two movies to the fact that they still want these performers and stuff in these MCU movies. I mean, we're seeing that right now with, with No Way Home and no, even I like, mean, like and, and rumors even, about like even want and even like the WandaVision and, and, and Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness is like, oh, maybe they will get a Patrick Stewart and like they'll throw him in there type of thing. What I'm saying is like they even have people like me being like, how do you do another Magneto? How do you do another right. Professor X? Because it's it's like so good. Yes. And like, and you know, I liked McAvoy and like Fastbender, but th they were good. Like, oh yeah, they're the good young versions of the people who should be playing these roles. Mm -hmm. So the reason I'm bringing all this up is like, what a fucking catch Patrick Stewart has gotten. Gotten like pitch perfect casting as Professor X and he's Picard. And I know he's like, Patrick Stewart's a very lighthearted guy. I know he's kind of like a fan of all of these like really well-known that 
that that he plays and he, he just he really has hit the jackpot mm-hmm. yes for sure uh so again patrick Stewart got a big deal spiner's happy because you know he's so involved with the creative aspect of this movie he's gonna get the big death as data you know he's gonna have a big role in this movie frakes is just happy to be there we get to burton and maria sturtis specifically mm-hmm. and it's it's particularly Jordy interesting and and uh yeah that's right yeah so Burton is one of the cast members on this film that he has said, and he said around the time that he had gotten the sense, despite what anybody else had said, that this was going to be the last Star Trek film. And so his whole thing was like, he was very instrumental in, okay, we need like to get people back in here. So it was like him that pushed for, uh, the cameo appearance by Will Wheaton returning as his character from The Next Generation. Did I miss that? He's so I will talk to this. He had a dialogue scene cut, but he is at the wedding and you can see him oh. at, at the table. All right. And I he do, also, there, there was one Star Trek cameo that I was proud that I knew, though. We'll get to there, but I, I there was one in there. Yes. That I knew. Uh, and even, even Burton was kind of like pushing for, um, Whoopi Goldberg to make her cameo as well. So he was kind of very much... Which was awesome. Yes, it was nice that to was see, great. especially after her kind of getting left out of uh, First Contact, that it was nice to see her back and she gets a line uh, as well. So he was very much like kind of getting the sense of like, no matter what they say, he just had a gut feeling this was going to be it for them. Then we get to uh, Mariana Sturtis as Deanna Troy. And her notably... Uh, she had two, two, well, one thing is that she said she had cried when she read the script and immediately called Brett Spiner about the death of Data, and it really affected her. And, and Brett Spiner's like, well, don't worry, I'm still here. That's just a fictional character. It's going to be okay. Like, he kind of joked with her, but just kind of like asserted, like, this is what I want, yada, yada, yada. But, and it's still not explicitly clear what her issue is, but it has been heavily speculated on what her issue was with the script. But she was not happy with a certain portion of the script and basically was like, if, I, if I'm going to do this movie, I need a lot of money. And again, she's never really talked about exactly- I know what it is. I, I can, she's never <laughs> talked about it, but there's a lot of speculation on what it was. Could you be possibly talking about the blemish on an otherwise, spoiler alert, it's not terrible movie? <laughs> Oh, I want to. I'll get to that when we talk about it. it. No, it really. I, I'll just lay my cards out on the table vaguely. I'll yeah. lay my vague cards on the table. Could it possibly have to do with the blemish on the movie? Yes, most likely, <laughs> most likely. But apparently, with her, the it got to the point where the studio explicitly told her, "Okay, you're getting replaced with spice." Um, what? You're going to get replaced by uh, Seven of Nine, uh, okay. Jerry, Jerry Ryan's character from Voyager, the, 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 the Borg character that gets, you know, there's a whole thing with her. She's yeah, a, that, that, I know her. Is that the one she's got, like, the fucking Yeah, she's a Borg that saved, yeah. that saved in Voyager that gets kind of rehabilitated and kind of back into kind of oh, like Oh, is that a, what her deal is? I, 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 she's one of those characters I know that's right. been, I've seen a lot. I have no idea what her deal is. Okay, right, I so, know that is. so Ryan talked about this a couple years after the movie at, at a convention, and she said that, she was, it was on the table. She was offered to be a replacement for Deanna Troy in the movie. 
Uh, and she said no because one, she had just gotten a role on Boston Legal and didn't <laughs> didn't want to like you know be too associated with Trek. She wanted to do other stuff. And two, she was like, it does not make sense for my character to be on the Enterprise. It makes no sense at all. Um, and then they're like, okay, once they did make the deal with uh, Marianne Sturtis, they did eventually pay her a big sum. Uh, but they said, okay, well, Jerry, do you want a cameo at the wedding? And she's like, no, why would I be invited to this wedding? I don't know anybody on the Enterprise. But it was the discussions with Jerry Ryan that went out nowhere that eventually did give him the idea to con- contact Kate Mulgrew to play the role of Janeway. Uh, that which I is, knew. She uh, showed up and I'm like, okay, I know that. And that's awesome. Character. Also, that's one last thing about the wedding stuff. Um, obviously, we do get cameos from Whoopi Goldberg. Again, Will Wheaton had a, had a scene cut, but was, you know, is present in the scene. Logan has said that he had written explicitly into the script that he wanted a Gorn to appear at the wedding, which is famously the lizard people that, uh, you know, fight. I've been, and- wanting, I've been wanting the Gorn to show up in these things for so long. They're, they're lizard people? How do you not do anything with lizard people? Right, but eventually, like, basically the studio's like, we can't make a new Gorn costume, it's too expensive, so they had to cut that out. But, okay, let's get to, besides all that stuff, let's get to the main two other castings of the movie. The main one that everybody kind of talks about now is young face Tom Hardy. Oh yeah. The, the youngest, fe- the youngest face, the youngest face, Tom Hardy, the future Bane, the future venom, uh, <laughs> as, uh, Praetor Shinzon, otherwise known as the clone of Picard. Uh, so Braden Berman talked a lot about what they wanted with this character. They wanted, th- there was a pitch early, early on that it was going to be Stuart in both roles, but, but Brayard was like, no, I want, I want uh, Stuart to play off of someone. I don't want to do the thing where I'm like, you know, he's kind of, you know, talking to nobody. He want he wanted scenes with the character. So then they're like, okay, we'll get someone that kind of could look like a young Patrick Stewart. We'll do some makeup work and we'll kind of, we'll kind of do that element and kind of shift the script a little bit. And Berman was, was, you know, thinking, okay, he was thinking actors that he knew and he was thinking Jude Law. That was his first choice was to do Jude Law, you know, hot young name in Hollywood was kind of the, the handpicked like future of the industry. And we, 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 a lot of people have talked about how that like put so much pressure on law and he was, you know, going into these type of roles, but Brad was very insistent. Like I want an unknown. I want someone nobody knows. I want to be able to mold the character and I want something, you know, different. So Hardy gets involved when um, Patrick Stewart asked uh, Hardy's agent, who was a friend of his, if he had anybody in mind that could play like kind of a younger him and sort of this, this kind of evil mirror version of him. And at the time, the, the Hardy's agent was like, well, Tom Hardy, he's great. You know, let's contact him. And Hardy was filming a movie in Morocco, Simon, an Englishman legionnaire. And he, you know, his agent told him about the stuff and he said like, this is what they want. Here's kind of the, your sides. Here's what we can do with the movie. And Hardy was interested, obviously, because it would be like a big role, a breakout role, something he could like really chew on. But he was unhappy with the scene he had gotten to to, to do his audition with. So he convinces Adrian to secretly send him the full script. Like just basically, don't tell them. I just want the full script. Hardy ran through everything, picked a scene he liked more. uh, And filmed his audition for whatever reason, mostly nude just without shirt or pants on. He just kind of did his audition 
uh, it was sent to, you know, the, the Picard, uh, the, the team, and they, they, they liked it enough. They flew him to Los Angeles to do a screen test with Picard. And Tom Hardy said that his screen test with Picard was absolutely appalling. And in normal circumstances, that would have been it for him. But Hardy had once again filmed himself practicing the scene in the hotel room and said, this is just a better version of this, handed it off. And that was enough for them to give him a second shot. Eventually, he got the role. And with that, you know, Hardy was heavily makeup. They did a lot to like, you know, gave him kind of a different nose, shaved his head. And especially with his, uh, you know, more distinct lips than Stuart, they gave him a scar on the lips to kind of indicate that he had been through, been through some shit. Uh, but the role I think you went a little bit shocked by yeah. was uh, kind of his right-hand man, the uh, Riemann Viceroy, um, who is sort of his partner throughout the movie, his, his, uh, uh, his friend throughout the movie. It is one Ron Perlman. Dude, that, that like, and it was one that once I saw the name, I was like, oh, that's totally who that is. Mm -hmm. Yes, 100%. Though uh, Perlman's discussions when he talks about this movie, the main thing he talks about is that from this movie, he became really good friends with Hardy. That he he thought that Hardy was a very smart young guy and, and thought that he was just like a really cool friend. And that even through kind of the rougher years between like this and 2008, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit in the aftermath um, that him and Hardy basically remained in contact and were, were, were good friends and sort of uh, confidants in each other. Um, so, and, and that is, that is Perlman in the makeup. And yes. Everything, right? Yes. Yes. Fucking yes. Which yep. we shouldn't be surprised about given his, what, like he that. does Hellboy after that too. And, and everything and, and Pacific Rim, as we've talked about on this, on this podcast before, uh, so they became really good friends in the movie. And again, Perlman was very eager to just like, take, dig into the makeup and everything like that. Um, one last note about the cast uh, off of, um, well, two last notes about the cast. Uh, this is the final appearance of Majel Barrett, the wife of Gene Ronberry in the Star Trek universe. Uh, she was contacted to play, uh, returned to her role as uh, Deanna Troy's mother, uh, but unfortunately, just she was working on another show uh, that, you know, from old Ron Berry scripts. But she does return to, for the final time, voice the Enterprise computer. Uh, oh, sweet. Yes. That's awesome. Um, that's, a, that's a little fun fact. I like that. And just as another fun fact about the movie, off of his relationship with the director from the first extra movie, Patrick Stewart invited uh, one Brian Singer to, to be a member of the Enterprise crew. Uh, so Brian Singer does appear. They didn't at, know better back then. They did not know. <laughs> they didn't know. No. <laughs> um, and, and then, so filming begins uh, in uh, December 2001. And the, the, there's a lot of things about the movie, but the main thing about the actual production is the relationship between Stuart Braird and the cast was not good. Um. Many felt that he had not done his research, that he admitted that he had never watched an ep actual episode of The Next Generation or any of the movies. Um, he kept calling LeVar Burton Laverne for whatever reason. Jesus. And at one point was asking if LeVar's character was an alien. Um, and most people just thought that he 
did not really respect the Star Trek universe in the way that other directors had in the past. Obviously, many cast members had directed, but even when we go back to Meyer, yes, Meyer had sort of this irreverent view of Trek, but he still had a respect for the material and kind of making it work. And and um, again, in, in interviews after this, uh, Mariana Sirtis under no did not did not hide her feelings for Braid and, and called him basically an idiot and 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 just like basically did not do well with the cast um and it really was sort of tough for a lot of people because there was a point where again th- these films had been going on you know since you know the next generation took over had been really diminishing returns that big bump with the borg and first contact you know the lower income from insurrection and this big gap between insurrection and nemesis there was a lot of like well is this being pushed forward and there was again, a lot of dissonance between the cast feeling, okay, this might be the last film with all of us together and kind of embracing that aspect of it. Whereas Berman and Braird and Logan and even Spiner being kind of the odd man out of his crew had were already kind of thinking about, well, what's kind of the next one going to be? Because they kind of were planting some seeds. But there were a lot of issues in terms of the actual day-to-day production just from a director with cast perspective. And Braird says later, as well that he did struggle that he thought that the you know entering this world would be a challenge but it was a struggle because he was kind of like i like to design my own stuff and he did get the redesign the phasers and some of the stuff and they had to build a new bridge because the voyager bridge that they had always used was torn down but he was always like but yeah but like the sick bay was like reused from you know enterprise like the new show that they had just put on air and and, and the, uh, you know, the some of the stuff in the Shenzhen ship was like stuff that was used in Deep Space Nine. Like he was like not really comfortable with having to really showcase a lot of this like reuse sets and the lore and the history and stuff. And he thought that it was something that at the end of the day was something that he kind of was doing too much, uh, too fast that, you know, without doing the research. Um, but at the end of the day, the movie, you know, did push through and, and the cast really took solace in the fact that they were back together again and they did feel like again the family dynamic and and again for most of the cast that thinking that this is likely going to be the last time they were really on set and really working together was kind of a big deal and it influenced a lot of the the acting in the movie uh effects wise some quick effects things finally for the first time in the history of trek the bridge set was rigged to move on its own as opposed to the cast having to do the classic, you know, move and they tilt. Oh, they the... were still doing that throughout all of these. Yes. Oh, that's great. Even on the movies. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cause, well, because the one thing you got to remember is that uh, for most of these movies, the enterprise sets were reused from the television shows, always going back to, you know, phase two for the motion picture. But a lot of these up until this point, they had always been using like the Voyager set or the set from the show, which was not rigged and didn't right, have the budget right. to rig. I, I always have to remember they weren't actively making Next Generation when these movies were happening. Right. They, they were reusing yeah. Voyager sets and stuff. So the fact that the Voyager set had been taken down meant that this was the first time they had to do a new bridge. And so they finally were able to rig it. Um, one, of the, one of the film's major effects was the scene where the Enterprise rams into... Uh, the other ship. And that was 100% practical outside of the explosion. They actually did push two models together 
and basically filmed it kind of on its side. So it looked like any debris were floating off in the space. They were just kind of falling down. Um, so that was kind of one of the major scenes of the movie. Uh, but this is the movie as well that, you know, going off of sort of the stuff that had been, you know, the rise of CG that we kind of saw throughout these next generation movies. This was the film most specifically that used a bunch of, of CG as well, you know, and, and sort of more CG with the ships and the world and sort of, you know, sort of shots of Romulus and, and Remus and, and all these different aspects of it. Most of the stuff was um, done with CG, though Braird's, he said his big practical scene that he really wanted and, and the scene that he said was kind of his cornerstone in his head of this of directing was the sort of uh what he called the car chase that happens early in the movie um and it's noted as well that stewart did a lot of his own stunt driving on that scene other than maybe the, the very beginning of the sequence and the very end of the sequence were stunts but stewart was re really in the vehicle uh for majority of those shots as well um yeah, and that that basically kind of wraps it up. I also want to mention that uh, Jerry Goldsmith returns one last time to do the score of this movie, and this would be his last ever film score. Uh, he he died two years after this movie, uh, unfortunately, to cancer. Um, but he specifically bookended very much this scene, this movie, with a lot of his score from the motion picture, especially sort of the Enterprise theme, uh, and especially because he felt that the end of the movie really reflected sort of the space doc sequence from the first movie. So there was a lot of echoing of his or motion picture score into this score uh, to sort of create a bookend for the franchise. But yeah, I mean, I think there's a little bit in terms of the aftermath that also will consider some of the things that, that, that come out of this movie. Or we'll talk about after we discuss the film, but it was a really interesting dynamic in that even around this point, there was some questions about Star Trek and again, producers and the director and everything were kind of, okay, this is, this is another one down the road, but there was a sense that, you know, sort of the Star Trek heyday was kind of on its way out um, with, with sort of this movie taking a long time to get made right now, you know, Star Trek enterprise, the prequel series had just made its way on the air. And even in its first season, wasn't doing too hot. Um, it wasn't really being promoted that well. There, there was just a sense of what is the future of Star Trek, especially as we said that Paramount had this success in Mission Impossible. Was that kind of the new golden child? There was a lot of uh, questions about it, but uh, you know, especially Rick Berman and Braird were extremely sort of interested in the movie they were making, and the cast was sort of along for the ride. And I think with that. Uh, let's get into what is Star Trek Nemesis. Here we do. Let's go. What is all this about? It's about destiny, Picard. It's about a Riemann outcast. You're not Riemann. And I'm not quite human. So what am I? My life is meaningless as long as you're still alive. What am I while you exist? shadow, an echo. If your issues are with me, then deal with me. This has nothing to do with my ship, nothing to do with the Federation. Oh, but it does. We will no longer bow before anyone as slaves. 
of the Romulans and not your mighty Federation. We, our race bred for war and conquest. Are you ready to plunge the entire quadrant into war to satisfy your own personal demons? It amazes me how little you know yourself. I am incapable of such an act. You are me! The same noble Picard blood runs through our veins. Had you lived my life, you'd be doing exactly as I am. So look in the mirror. See yourself. Consider that, Captain. I can think of no greater torment for you. Shins on? I'm a mirror for you as well. Not for long. I'm afraid you won't survive to witness the victory of the echo over the voice. Alrighty, so... Star Trek Nemesis. I, I was very eager to, to revisit this. Yeah, this was one of the times where you did text me saying, like, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this one. Well, because, again, it's I'm always interested in, especially when we go through these franchises, right? To talk about these films that have a reputation, mm -hmm. because the distinct reputation of Nemesis is it stands in many people's eyes alongside Star Trek V The Final Frontier as the low point of these Star Trek films. And we've already gone through Star Trek V, and we've already kind of determined that that film really isn't as bad as people make it out to be, that there is gems amongst that movie. Star Trek, you got you to gotta use subtitles. For me, because I lose yeah, track the final front, the, the God, final frontier, the final God frontier. One. Okay, right, right, the, right, right, the, right. We, we talked about that, you know, God and, and right. the Kirk directed one. Like notoriously, we, I was a fan of. I, right, I enjoyed right. And, the and, film. and yeah. I and I said as well during that movie that it's still like lower on my rankings, but you know, I found that there was a lot more to enjoy out of that movie. Mm. And even with Insurrection, which I had always said was my least favorite, I, I came around to saying like, yes, it's still again not amongst the top, but it's also not a bad movie. And really, at the end of the day. For most of, most part, I come around on that to Nemesis in the sense that it's not really the upper echelon of Trek, but it's fine. It it works. It's still fun to see these characters. There's some gems. There's some really good stuff in this movie. Then some stuff I really enjoy. And yes, there are some very questionable stuff as well, which we will definitely talk about. Mm -hmm. um, but it's 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 a it was a it was a fine watch, and I, I definitely enjoyed seeing sort of the young young Tom Hardy, you know, doing his Tom Hardy stuff and, and sort of really you <laughs> know, his Tom Hardy. He he does a lot of Tom Hardy stuff in the movie. It, it's really There's a few things that it, he this is proto Tom Hardy. This yes. was this was the 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 like if in many ways Nemesis is the audition for the career of Tom Hardy. A hundred percent like at large. Yes. Like it, it really is. Yeah. Uh, there's 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 a, some fun stuff seeing him. It's still like again a nice thing to just see these cast members together, um, and, and doing stuff. Most of them doing stuff, uh, in this movie. Uh, and and, and uh, there are some solid sort of ideas. And I just felt that like, I I definitely did not hate my time watching this film. So I want to start my 
my I'm gonna make you wait yeah. for for my reaction because I want to start out with like my, my history watching the movie. Mm-hmm. So the thing about it is like so I I remember watching this this film and and I've told you my history with Star Trek was that especially of the age that this came out way more familiar with the next generation mm-hmm. and more so familiar with it because it was just the Star Trek show that was always on. And like, and I knew like everybody in my family would watch it. Like this was like the Trek for me growing up. I mean, mm-hmm. not that I was into it, but it was the one that was in the culture growing up. So then this is the first movie I, I had seen. And I remember watching the film when it, when it came out on home release and my reaction to it was kind of how many movies of this type that weren't, that didn't have my 100% interest in, which was many. But the thing is like, you know, I, I, a big movie fan over here. I mean, Godzilla wouldn't have happened if I didn't, wasn't into weird things, but nowhere near the level of paying attention to a movie that, it, that I have now. Mm-hmm. Like I have way more like, all right, I'll, I'm gonna sit down and give this movie a chance because I enjoy watching movies. Like back then, when, I, when you're a kid, you're interested in watching movies, but if you're not that interested in the movie, right? You, you, like you, you, you some do, of your attention. You play with something, or you're just yeah, kind of yeah, like, yeah. you know, you're working on something else, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I had this, I had this reaction to it where I was like, all right, it was fine. Some weird stuff in it, but it, you know, it's fine. And it was more so like, I know, it's the people from the show, and they're doing movie stuff. That's great. My second reaction to it comes in the form of a question when did galaxy quest come out <laughs> uh would have been 1998 i think something it's in or late 90s for sure galaxy quest so galaxy quest came out in 1995 or oh, oh, wow. no 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 sorry 1999 okay yeah i think it was like developed earlier but like yeah 1999 this As, is star trek two, nemesis is what 2000 2002 so I must have seen, yes, I must have seen Galaxy Quest before this film. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it was of the time when Nemesis comes out, and then you're just kind of reminded, at least for me, oh yeah, this is all the stuff that Galaxy Quest was making fun of. Galaxy Quest is a great movie. Let's watch Galaxy Quest. <laughs> like, unfortunately, that was it. Yeah. Okay. So my history of it was like, it's a movie that was fine when I watched it. Many more, uh, many other Star Treks come out, and then by the time that there's a legacy to it, it's like, yeah, that's the that's the Star Trek movie that's not great, and for some reason has a weird molestation scene in it. <laughs> so I just kind of like, yeah, that's probably what it is. Now, getting, I watched it last night, Nick. Yep. It's not bad. It's not. Like, it's it really not, isn't. It's not a bad movie. And so what I what I come down to is that it really isn't a bad movie with, for some reason, a weird <laughs> molestation scene in it, which I do not like. It's a blemish of, on the movie. Mm-hmm. Not entirely, you know, it, it's... I don't want to say it's forgivable, but you're able to kind of be like, you know, they they try to 
bring it around town with it. They they try to like you know have a character have a comeuppance at the end, and you're like, all right, they they technically did it. I don't, I still don't think it has. I, why does it need to be in this movie? Yeah, don't like it, and we'll get to it. But other than that, it, I just thought it was a solid movie i just thought it was a solid yeah, sci-fi movie it really, really is did. it really is and it really what i kind of thought after this film when when we get to the end and the credits started rolling i my my kind of initial thought was man what a solid series of 10 movies that these films have had since the motion picture and yes, I, will, I, I will say this i i liked it more than insurrection mm-hmm. I, I do did too. not ex- what I, I did not expect to because insurrection was one of those movies where i was like i dug it i like i dug what it was doing like i i i i didn't think it was really exceptional not that i think that this movie is exceptional but there there really wasn't anything about it that i would like get on board with whereas like this movie i watched and i'm like it's it's you know it you know, it, it's it's not like an exceptionally like novel form of a sci-fi movie, but yeah. in terms of a space faring, there's a bad guy. This is the bad guy's plan. They do enough of they do enough with the plot to not make it extraordinarily tedious. Yeah, the performances are pretty good. They they do some fun character stuff, especially if you know these characters. I walked away fairly entertained i i really i thought it was a solid film yeah i i i I, but i i remember too because it was like there was a reason that i had insurrection at the bottom of my previous list it was because that even at that time like i i think i can appreciate certain aspects of nemesis even more now again just even having grown so much as a film watcher and just as a person from 2018 to now but even then i kind of had this thought of like well it's not really as bad as people say again there are better trek films but it's not as bad as people kind of make it out to be and again i'm just like there's really not a film in these kind of very first original series that like i have a strong disliking of especially on these rewatches where i kind of grew to appreciate final frontier a lot more and i've always had sort of this weird connection with the motion picture everything else has been very good to super solid like i really don't i mean maybe like even like generations at least has a good first half or at least an interesting first half. And I think like if, if there was one thing about these rewatches, it's like maybe like nemesis goes up a little bit more and maybe generations goes down a little bit more. Um, But I I really think this whole Trek franchise has been really fun to rediscover it because I think it's just at very least a very solid, just continuation of films. Yeah. I think that if I had to look at, I think probably Genesis is, the worst of these four if i had to pick one for me are generations or generations right because you you go you combine generations and nemesis and i was confused again well no yeah it's because the thing about generations is like when i think about what i really like that makes me want to put it higher it really isn't in that much of the movie no it's just true i think it's 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 literally the first like 10 15 minutes and the last 15 minutes of that film are like good and i and i really and i don't think Gen- generations is a bad movie it's just right yeah but i think yeah. that's i mean I, I think when the worst of it is generations which still has stuff to like oh yeah sure it's just stuff. And, 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 and i think when it comes down to nemesis again good stuff with some character stuff good stuff with sort of a i i think again there's some really fun stuff with with uh tom hardy's chenzon character yeah yeah, yeah. uh w- again with a couple blemishes um it's and again, it's just still fun to see kind of 
like sort of stuff. There's some fun action in the movie. Um, some weird lighting at one point or another. But other than that, like good stuff. I, all around. I thought I thought that the movie, I thought it had everything about the characters that I like about the, the movie, mm-hmm. about about these characters. Um, I thought it. I thought that it was you know it was kind of refreshing to be to see a final movie that wasn't so it kind of snuck in a lot of like final movie stuff in there yes. yeah. without it being like so much about like oh this is like the final one like mm-hmm. you know what I mean like so yeah. I I thought that they did that I thought they had a solid villain mm-hmm. like is it like a traditional vi- well you know me I don't care like it it a, a villain can just be a villain like yeah. I don't need I don't need like some truly complex novel thing for a villain. I'm just coming out and saying it. Like it's just like the villain can just be that. Like it yes. could just be like the guy who it could be exactly what Tom Hardy is in this movie, mm-hmm. frankly. That's how I feel about it. So it has a solid it has a solid enough villain. The plan is solid enough. Um it's got some like, you know, sacrifices in it. I actually think for a movie of this era it looks pretty good. Yeah, uh, I for me it's like like ninety five percent of the movie looks pretty pretty good. Yeah, like, I, I I would say like what the the best part of the movie to me was any time it had like a, a visual effect like like um like an establishing shot of like a planet or a location, um all that stuff was really great and even the dated stuff. It was dated if you know the technology, but it looked still pretty yeah. solid. Like they they knew kind of like it was still pretty high end for what they for what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And what I was really impressed by was that it still had that modern sheen to it, all like the 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 sets and the visual effects. Mm-hmm. But it still felt within the world of the three previous movies that we had watched. I, I felt that too, that it, it still, it had its like feeling of like, yes, it was sort of like, you know, early 2000s sci-fi mm. action. Like it still kind of had like some of the advances in camera stuff and, and technology stuff, but it did, you know, it wasn't too far gone from how, how insurrection looked and how, you know, first contact. Yeah. They managed well. it in a way that made it feel like these were like, it, in the same just world all, yeah, yeah. It, it just all took place in the same world so i i was actually really impressed by the vfx management of it um i mean there's like uh patrick stewart continues to kill it as picard yes in it especially because it's another movie that's so focused on him yeah. and his relationship with data and i think like that's the stuff where you know, he can really eat that up a, a lot, you know, and, and kind of pull a lot of the stuff out of out of Picard. And especially, like, again, like, the decision to have someone else play Senjon instead of him, I think is a really good choice because you get some really fun stuff together with him and Hardy, and I think they, they kind of bounce off each other. And, again, Hardy gets to, you know, kind of be a slight, you know, not slight. I mean, he, he gets to be a Tom Hardy scene chewer in many respects. Like, he, it's that signature Tom Hardy, like, big performance stuff. Uh, but I think like, you know, he gets like those moments to pull sort of that out of Stewart as well. And you get some, you know, fun scenes with the two of them together. Yeah. Um, and, and and him and, and, and Picard, uh, sorry, Stewart and Brett Spiner. I was going to uh, mention uh, so, and Brett Spiner's like, this is some of my favorite stuff of him as data. Yeah. And it's like the, and the movie, two of them, yeah. it's like their, their character relationships are so good. And, and the actor relationships are so good. And, and it and continues you know, to be good between the two of them. 
there was a part of this movie where I was almost like the only kind of nitpick I would give to it, which I'm sure there's <laughs> other nitpicks I would give, but like the, one of the nitpicks I would give is that I, I wonder if the movie completely earns the sacrifice at the end of it. But I say that being like, from a plot point, it seems to like, it didn't seem like they were leading up to this. Mm -hmm. But that to me kind of coming back, cause I knew that happened. Obviously I, I've seen the movie, but like the way in which it's handled, it really would be like a mat. I'm trying to put myself as a Star Trek fan in like the position of that movie, like when it came out, like the mm -hmm. way they do plot that and handle it, it really would be a like, what? <laughs> like, like, I'm just trying, cause it really does. It, it really is a shock when it happens. And I wasn't sure about it, but I'm already in my head thinking about the way in which story-wise, yeah, it, it is kind of clever, like how, what they do with it. And also considering this, this is the final movie too. It, mm -hmm. It's, it's, um, it, it, you know, it's, um, it's good. I, I mean, I enjoy the little cameos that were in the film. Um, cameos and broad and, 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 you know, like bigger universe cameos and connections are great. Like, I know it's cool not to like these anymore, but it's, it's just fun. It's, it's fun to see. It's, just, it's, it's fun just to see fun. It's fun to see Janeway. It's fun to have, you know, uh, Whoopi Goldberg have a joke. Here's my defense of it. And this has always been my defense of it. Why it's fun. Because there are ways to like do it wrong. But yeah, I think like, I, I, I think yeah. the, the problem with the argument now is like people argue it from a form of principle. Like they mm -hmm. argue it from a form of like movies shouldn't be doing this or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But like, because that has always been a topic, I'm not trying to like connect it to this one specifically, but this made me think about why I think it is fun because I don't follow this. I really don't. I kind of know this, that, and the other. Mm -hmm. So, like, the fact that I don't know Kate Mulgrew's character, she's from what? Voyager? Voyager, yeah. She's from Voyager. But I, I have not seen an episode of Voyager. But I know Kate Mulgrew plays a captain on Voyager. Yeah. So when she shows up in the movie, I'm like, oh, that's her. And then it just, and, and in a weird way, it, is it like a shorthand and a cheat a little bit? But I'm almost, I get more invested in the world that they create. Right. Because it's that one thing, because it, 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 people often say like, well, if this character shows up, then it makes the world feel smaller. And I, and, and in some ways they are right. But in this case, I disagree because it makes me like, be like, oh yeah, this is like a massive world where like there's different characters from like different versions of the show. And then because I know that it's big and sprawling with other things going on and characters cross-pollinate then i'm like I, in a weird way i get more invested in the reality of the fiction does mm -hmm. that make sense yeah no i i 100 percent agree and yeah, I that, think, so like, that's how i that's why and, I, and, it was and yeah. i think it again like something like uh you know kate rubber coming back as janeway works on multiple levels because she is like sort of a recognizable and it's like oh she's another character from the show but then if you're a star trek fan you're like oh like once voyager made it back from it's like you know like being lost in space sort of thing she got to you know go up the ranks and be like an admiral and a commander mm -hmm. you know she she got to be you know promoted and everything so it's kind of like nice on both respects and i think what we were talking about like just just throwing in seven of nine would have been the bad way to do that because they're you know you're not really building the connection you're just throwing in a character but just having like the things where it's like yes that makes sense and like kind of the little moments that's what like where it makes it really work yeah so. yeah 
So overall, I, I, I just, I thought it was just a solid, just fun, like movie to put on on a Saturday night and just yeah. watch like a spacefaring adventure. I, yeah, I really, for sure. I really enjoyed myself. I really, again, it's like not like the very tippity top of Trek, but I thought this was just a fun enough film that I, I would actually just put this on for, for a casual viewing more so than not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing I did like about it too, was that in this kind of maybe gets into this is a good segue into the actual movie itself but it was another movie of, of these of especially these um uh next uh next generation films mm-hmm. was that um they dive into some of the political stuff of star of star trek and like it opens on the whole like rom romulans and um what's the other species called uh remans the the remans and then they they tie that into how what like they have their own political thing going on and there's ramifications for like the stability and the politics of the galaxy overall and and i and i dig that i i, I dig how they do that and they dive into and, and you've all you've heard me through these films especially with star trek that often everybody wants to argue to be like you know the smart political star star sci-fi or whatever it always goes a long way if you add you do add nuance to some of the care to some of the sides yes and one of these cases is that they have the romulans and they're going through their own shit but then as the movie goes on you, you see that it, it's not that the romulans are just all evil like you know there are some romulans who are like yeah i don't know if we should be doing this and then the other romulans who are doing it are like yeah we probably shouldn't be doing it's like right it just it just goes a long way and i and i definitely enjoy that aspect of it and i think one of the benefits of using the romulans is the fact that like there really wasn't so much established lore as i mentioned a lot of the lore that was meant for them went to the klingons and made the klingons more distinct and more you know deep especially when you get into next generation in deep space nine and there was a lot more exploration of what the klingons were as you get the wharf's character so like the remans for example was something that was kind of created for this film but does make sense within the world of trek in the sense that like again we don't know much about the romulus world it is a very you know warlike and and violent society to an extent of like there are uprisings there are you know new government and shenzhen mentions it there's always new governments coming in you know there's always upheaval and there's always different decisions on what's kind of happening and this is an example because we open up the movie on the romulus on the romulan senate and they're having this sort of discussion where the military of romulus which is again a big part of its society uh is in agreement with senson that they should make you know a relationship with the remans they can finally take on the federation and the romulan the romulus senate basically says no they are slaves they work for us on, on our planet for mining purposes. They are a lower class of society. We are not to, to go with them. The military doesn't make decisions. We make decisions, and, and, and the answer is no. And then basically, like, the military Romulans go out. One of the other senators goes out, and essentially, it's it's a coup. And essentially, the entire, you know, Romulan Senate, they're deciding some other treaty. They're deciding some other relationship. The sort of device activates that kind of showers the room in some sort of green stuff. We don't really know what it is yet. And essentially the entire Romulan Senate disintegrates and we kind of see like a political coup happening right in front of us. So it kind of like gets into it right away. You kind of get the lore right away. You get sort of this relationship. It kind of opens up 
again, a lot of interesting, as we said, stuff where, again, they have a betrayer, but then we later, you know, later in the film, we'll get into it. There's kind of like, you know, second thoughts on it and, and everything like that. And, and it's, a, it's a solid way to let's just kind of get us invested into like, okay, this is sort of the film and like what the actual sort of plot of it's going to be is sort of all out of this. Yeah. And I think it's a nice cold open that contrasts right away with sort of, um, you know, this initial wedding ceremony for, for Riker and Troy, who, you know, rekindled their relationship in the last movie. And of course we're kind of leading into sort of this, this wedding ceremony. Um, Picard gets to give the best man speech, uh, which is, which is a fun little speech. I, I, I thought it was a well-written sort of like very Bacardi, like best yeah. man, like tickling the stuff, you know, can can I say I I'm I, I'm a little bit I, I I did want to say this I almost forgot to say this I really dug just the opening of the movie yeah like even just the way the title card was and then just the zooming in through it and seeing the planets and I, I just right well done just like aesthetically directed I just I dug it yeah it's, really it's also distinct because one it's one it's the first Star Trek movie that doesn't have. Uh, the cast opening credits. It just shows the title and goes directly into the movie. Also is distinct for the backwards R, which was hotly debated among mm. the crew and mm. eventually was like decided that, yeah, we're going to do the backwards yeah. R. I guess I don't have like a passionate opinion. No, me neither. R. It's just yeah. one of those things where it's just like, I just know that was a very passionately debated. Should yeah. we do it? But yeah, no, it's just like kind of gets right into it and gets right into like, again, the political nature of everything. So. Yeah. But yeah, so the then the the stuff with Picard, his speech at the wedding, is all good stuff. Um, um, and we kind of figure out that like Riker and Troy are leaving the Enterprise. Riker is going to take command. He's going to be a captain of the Titan. Um, and, and again, it's just some fun banter. And again, it's just like this is what we like about these characters and these relationships that you know Picard can give a, a ball busting sort of best man speech. He can have that sort of fun, but at the end, still you know genuinely toast you know, his good friends and people that are important to it, important to him on the ship. Um, and again, we get some, again, again, uh, Will Reeton's character was cut from his own scene, but you see him at the table. We get a nice joke from Whoopi Goldberg where it's like, she's like, like, you know, um, Jordy asks her about marriage and she's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm 13 was my limit. And he just kind of looks at her, um, you know, distinct. Great, we also get a great, um, uh, oh man, why am I blanking on his name? Um, ah, oh, oh, I'm I'm so embarrassed. Uh, Klingon, Klingon. Worf, Worf, Worf. Oh man, I oh, I'm so embarrassed. Uh, we get another great great Worf moment. Where he's oh, like, I, where he's like, what's wrong with you? And he's like, Romulan ale should be illegal. It is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that's one of the moments. I want to. We'll, we'll get to the other moment in a second. There's also yeah. a joke where. They this is a ceremony on Earth for like Riker. And oh gonna, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't think I know where you're going. They're yeah. they're gonna do another one on um on uh, uh Troy's home planet where yeah. the the tradition is that everybody has to be nude. Uh, and where there's some running gag early in the movie where like where Worf is very like disturbed by this and it's just like I I, I just feel it's inappropriate for me to be nude. But but the big part of the scene and the scene the big part of the scene and the thing that people remember, which, which, which is a funny character moment for Worf. Yes, like is that it's like 
he's just super like he's from like the klingon empire and they're klingons and, and meanwhile he's like i don't want to i don't want to be naked well i just like, like a little bit later I, well, i'll get to the part of the scene that everyone everybody remembers but a little bit later when he's like complaining to picard about it on back on the enterprise he's like picard's like oh come now like you're a klingon you, you, you know tradition like you, you, anybody who's understand tradition it's you and he's like why wouldn't we want to look at a big, like, handsome, yeah. strapping, I thought that strapping was funny. Man, like, like you? And I just, again, just the interviews. But, but in terms of the wedding sequence on Earth, the, the, the major moment, both for the character and also just from a, a fan perspective, what the mo- memorable part of the scene is, is Data getting up with the band uh, oh, yes, and, yeah. and presenting his gift of singing uh, the song Blue Skies, uh, which, again, Spiner does a great job with. And then we get like a little button on the scene where Worf looks up and just like like slinks back down. He's like Irving Berlin, which in my head canon and what I like that this implies is after the last movie, after he didn't know who Gilbert and Sullivan were, like 100% Picard and Data like sat him down and introduced him to a bunch of like classic like earth music to the fact that like he knows who Irving Berlin is and has been very annoyed by him in the past. So I kind of really dug that sort of joke right there. It was it's very nice. That that is good. I like that. Uh so basically the shit but then the shit gets real. Right. Well, I didn't the, think it was going to get real, but then it gets real. They're on their way to Troy's planet for the naked ceremony when they pick up a, a, a positronic signal, which is very distinct because it's the sort of positronic signal that only has come from androids like Data and, and, and Data's like lineage. So Picard can't help himself and basically is like, I think it's worth something investigating. And he, you know, basically is like, you know, and there's this whole kind of bit where, again, they're going to leave Riker on the ship because like, hey, uh, you know, you know, your wife wouldn't forgive me like Mr. Troy and everybody like looks at him like, ha, you're, you're getting married. Ha <laughs> ha. Uh, but, but Picard's also very eager to try out the Argo and, and, and give it a shot because they can't like beam down to the planet due to interference. So can I, can I say so? Because that's a thing where definitely there's like, it strikes me as a movie thing where they just want a scene where like well we want to do something different how do we do something different well okay we're gonna get put somebody on like a like a like a like a buggy essentially and then they're like well this is star trek how do you get somebody on a buggy and i love that like really and i'm not saying this is the case but it works out because it's such like a fun character moment and it's so honest and true to just being a human being that picard would just be like I just want to try it out. Though. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's like we don't really get to use it that much. Let's 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 try out the 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 rover or whatever. Like I I just thought those are just little moments that continue to make me like Star Trek. Mm-hmm. It's like when they dive into the fact that it is a future thing and that like th- that there is because when you think about it, like I mean we do that all the time. It's the reasons yes. people like listening to vinyl it's the reason you and i like listening to vinyl because it's like well it's not the norm of what we do and it's like an older thing that we just think is cool yeah so i love it when the star trek movies um allude to behaviors like that right so yeah no i, I think it's fun and i think it's again it's just fun banter between the characters and i think it's really the characters that sell it that it's easy to kind of you know excuse it as what we've said is just kind of an excuse but 
it is something where it's like if you can bring it within the characters and and make it like fun for Picard and Riker and Data and everybody to go through, you know, I think it can work. So we yeah. get onto um, the uh, the planet, um, uh, Coloran uh, in the Coloran system. And this is the one part of the movie where I kind of felt like, okay, we're in sort of this 2000s era for sure. Because like this planet has that very sort of like earthy brown cinematography with like a very like white like sky. It's just very felt, blown out sky. Right. Yeah. Very, very like kind of like, yeah, very, just a very blown out look. Like it very much felt like, oh, this is the type of stuff you see in like specific action movies from like, this era into the early 2010s like you kind of get this stuff like something that wouldn't be so out of place in sort of that michael bay type of action film sort of thing like that maybe not specifically michael bay but just sort of that thing so that was this one was one of one of the parts that kind of was like oh yeah we're, we're definitely in the the early 2000s for sure um but basically they go with the rover the, the argo stewart's having a blast driving it or picard is but also stewart of course is having a blast driving it and um, they they continually find, you know, more and more pieces of the android. They're all getting the sense that something something's up here. Something is very distinctly up. And eventually they find the head of the this android as they're collecting all the pieces. And it is, in fact, sort of another part of the Data lineage uh, alongside Data and Lore and, and these other characters that have been built uh, by the same sort of creator. Um, as we come to learn, he is before uh, the prototype to what data would become. Um, and basically, you know, there's some sort of fun stuff initially where they're kind of like, it's you. It isn't, you know, it is me, whatever. Uh, and then like the, the inhabitants of the planet come up and I, I it's always kind of funny when like they, they, again, sort of this thing where it's like, we just want kind of an action scene but we also don't want to make it like too much like Star Trek sci-fi. So it basically is just like a bunch of people in like helmets on like tanks, essentially like, like ATV tanks, just like, like just shooting like bullets. Like it's not even like phasers or anything like that. It's just basically like, no, these are just regular like guns essentially, which is kind of funny. Uh, but we get, and then we get kind of a chase through the desert. We get some things with before asking like why Picard's head is so shiny and, you know, data being data and like trying to like, explain it and Picard's like not now data like I'm sorry it's just like I, I'm trying to explain to this guy and then the basically this is this decent little car chase with the through the kind of this desert planet and eventually they end with like a scene straight out of Fast and the Furious or Mission Impossible where they like drive the ATV off a cliff like right into like the the shuttle ship like like a perfect thing right or like it's really like out of bond like they essentially do that in like like uh like it's basically like the same sort of a different version of the same thing that's in like the living daylights and everything like that, where they literally just drive a car into the back of a plane. Mm -hmm. Like it's right out of a bond movie, honestly. And it's kind of funny, again, funny to see. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, it's like, it's, it's again, it's fine. It's nothing. Yeah, I, I, th this is like the, probably the most obligatory part of the movie. Yeah. Like, I, well, cause like... it's, it's like data and like the B4 character. And it's like, they eventually explain like it, it was like a setup and everything, but it really kind of does feel like, cause you get this sequence and then it does kind of just transition into like the Janeway things. Like, Oh, by the way, the Romulans want to talk to us. Right. Like, it seems like it's a very tenuous connection 
um, to like scene to scene, which is kind of also why it kind of stands out like very much at the beginning of the movie. Well, like it, the thing about this whole plot line, because you're right, it is kind of like, it, and it's interesting because you could always throw it away as like, it's their way of having to do the sacrifice at the end, but then being able to get away with it. But A, they also don't really go for it. Mm-hmm. And at the time, this is the last movie. You know what I mean? So it's like yeah. in the in the way that he, it's even portrayed, it's not like it's not like the end of Big Hero Six, where essentially they just got Baymax back. Yeah, it wasn't like oh, we just fucking like put the backup in you, and then now you're Data again. Like it, it really isn't like that. I mean, this is kind of getting into a bigger like thing about the movie, but, but really what it is, it's like it, it's setting up this whole kind of thing where okay, well, there's two versions of of you that have the same lineage you come from the same place they're essentially just kind of like your doppelganger but it's also a way to prove that yeah but you are you like data is always going to be data picard is always going to be picard and it's not you you two aren't the same necessarily Mm -hmm. like you're the same but you aren't the same and that's effectively what they're really what they're setting up Yes. And, it's, and it's admirable is that they're more so setting up a thematic point rather than necessarily a plot point, which, yeah, yeah. And, I, sure. and I think they pull it off. And, it, and again, I think they eventually explain it, but it, at the time you're watching, it does kind of feel like a weird little diversion before we're getting back to kind of what we saw at the beginning of the movie too. Cause I guess another distinct thing is this planet is on the Federation side of the neutral zone. Uh, the Romulan it, it, neutral it does, zone. It, I will say the, it, I think it all plays but it does feel like the most kind of like every time they come back to it, it does kind of seem like the most detour yes. that the movie takes is yeah. every time they go back to this B4 plot. Like I'm like, okay, like it's, it's nice. Cause I like Brent Spiner. Yeah. But I, I don't feel like it, it, it doesn't, if I had to dock it a point, mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily flow as well as the rest of the movie flows. For sure. Because, again, right after that, they return, they kind of explore, you know, before, and they know, okay, he is specifically, you know, essentially an early version of Data, so he doesn't have all the same neural networks and everything. He's not, you know, not as smart or, or as aware of Data. He's, you know, very much like kind of, a, he is very much before is like a child. He's very curious. He's asking a bunch of questions. And, you know, it's important to Data because Data has this connection to, like, where he came from and stuff. And also, he views him as a brother, just as other characters on in Next Generations, more specifically Lore, come from that same lineage as well. So, you know, Data has a sort of familial connection with, with uh, B4 and wants to make him sort of the best version that he can be. Meanwhile... Picard is in his quarters, gets an emergency call from Starfleet. It is our Admiral Janeway, um, Kate Mulgrew, making her cameo. And she essentially explains that it, there has been some sort of coup, uh, some sort of overthrow what? of government. A coup. A coup. A coup. A coup. <laughs> there's chickens on this planet? <laughs> yeah. There's been some sort of coup. I usually of- let some of these go. I don't know if I can let coup go. No, I just it was a misspeak. <laughs> I can say that outright. It was There's some sort of coup, some sort of you know, uprising on Romulus. Uh, a new Praetor has been in place and nobody knows where he's come from, Praetor Senjon. And he is opening up contact with Starfleet in the Federation to talk peace. And I again, I like this throughout the, I like this throughout these Star Trek films, but I like it especially here that everybody's already like, it's not like, oh man, like the Romulans want peace. Like 
that's great. Like everybody's sort of like, okay, like this is sort of odd. We do have, I mean, it's our duty and it's our, it's our, in our best interest to investigate this, but basically everybody needs to be careful, especially like, cause Janeway does mention like the soaring and the boring. And it's like, you get all the fun assignments, uh, you know, Picard, but like, this is, this is going to be a tough one. So like, like just, uh, just be careful, but essentially like, okay, like see what's yeah. going on. Cause in either case, whether they want peace or this is some sort of trap, it seems like it's some sort of issue with the Federation. So we need to kind of, you know, make sure what it is. Well, one thing that should not work that actually does in this movie yeah. is that it's not entirely that they tell you what the villain's plan is because you don't really know quite yet, mm-hmm. but they do the thing where you as the audience knows that the villain is up to something. But the good guys also know that, yeah, this is too good to be true. They're probably up to something. Yeah. And I always, I always will appreciate that. I always will appreciate that. It makes it less tedious to watch. Yeah. Because ultimately the other way is that you either do two things. You either, you give way too much of the villain thing away and then you're just waiting for the characters to find out, or you've seen a movie before and you know something bad's going to happen, and then you're just waiting for the characters to find Well, out. and it also, like, you know, again, it just makes the characters look aware and smart of what what right. the world is and right. what their position is, that they're not just blinded by, oh, this new guy wants peace. That's a good thing. Like, no, they know at this point. They've been through enough adventures. They've, they've dealt with the Romulans enough that they know there's still – you know, there's still time to be suspicious. There's still time to be cautious about this, that it's not just to like blindly go again and like what you've betrayed me. Like, I just appreciate that when the characters are smart, like with are with the audience. <laughs> there, there, there is a plot point in this movie where they do go that, that route where it's just like, Oh my God, there's a piece. And then eventually both parties are like, nah, let's, let, let's just, let's just get on with it. Like <laughs> I, I did, I did appreciate that. But anyway, yeah. So they go, they go to, Romulus, right? Is yes, because because he's yeah, he's Romulus. on Romulus, yeah. Yeah. So they go to Romulus. They have a big scary ship. Like, oh my god, it's the big scary ship of this movie. That's gotta be on TV tropes, right? Yeah. The big scary ship. Right, yeah. They are big scary ship. That happens actually a lot in Star Trek now that I think about it. Mm-hmm. Like there's always like the reveal of this is their big scary ship. Well, especially because like the whole again in, in lore, it's just like more and more civilizations get cloaking devices, so Right. There's more and more like we're hidden. Actually, it's funny. Like that is the big thing, and they haven't figured out how to, how to like. I mean, I, I do kind of like that because that makes it like a real coveted thing. Mm. Is good cloaking technology? Yeah, I think and like one of the, I think it's like one of the movies they do like test it right. They do have like we have like a a testing ship we're testing with cloaking sort of things. So, right. um, which is funny because it's like they like uh you know time travel is just kind of something that you can do if you're crazy but yeah the cloaking technology we can't figure out right um but yeah so they get there ron perlman comes up and he's like i'm ron perlman i'm not tom hardy yeah i meet tom hardy well because also the thing is is that they've been waiting for like seven hours like they got there they were invited but the but the enterprise has just been sort of sitting up in space for a long time and then finally Ron Perlman's character comes out, the Riemann Viceroy, and they think he's Senzon. It's like, I'm not Senzon. You know, come here. We're giving you coordinates. And it's basically like a very short and, and, and simple meeting. And eventually they get the coordinates and they head on, head on down. Uh, and we get the big sort of in-darkness introduction to one Senzon, a.k.a. one young yeah. boy, young boy Tom Hardy. Yeah. 
And I think it, this... it, it's so interesting watching young Tom Hardy because it's like it just really is proto Tom Hardy. Right. It's it <laughs> is like the Hardy that we know now, right? It's yeah. the Hardy that's making like very specific choices. Like, you know, isn't but not afraid... bad. No, not bad. He's not... just super into it. Yeah, and not not afraid to be a little bit big, not afraid to really be a little bit scene chewery. Like he's not afraid of that stuff. And he really kind of lays in, especially in this introduction scene where for majority of the sequence, like he's just shrouded in darkness. And they kind of again, like, you know we Remans are not used to the light. So, you know, we, we feel more comfortable in the dark and in this big mysterious dude. And he's basically, you know, going on this big monologue and, and, and talking about it. And again, there's very distinctive stuff we figure out like data is trying to secretly scan him, but he's like, we're out in the open Worf immediately points out that he is human, you know, that he looks human, that he doesn't look like a, a Reman or a Romulan. Um, <laughs> these, there's an initial like infatuation with Deanna, you know. I've never seen a oh, human yeah, woman. Yeah, I haven't seen a human woman before. Let me touch your hair. And Frank's is like, "What business do you have with with my wife?" You know, and he's like, well, "Yeah, well, because he's like he knows everybody." And then they're like, "How do you know everybody?" By the right. way, I was just looking up. I was looking up Tom Hardy's filmography, and an article popped up saying, um, "Venom star Tom Hardy secrets secret." Venom stop ah Venom star Tom Hardy's secret wish is to play the soft and nice rom com guy, which I one hundred percent believe that's what he wants to do. I would also one hundred percent watch that performance. Yes, because he's a guy. The reason I was looking him up because I'm like, has he ever phoned in a performance? And I don't think he has. But it doesn't because he just seems like a guy who just wants to get on set and have fun in a role. He does yeah. not care what he what it is. Case in point, he is in two Venom movies. He does not care. He wants to just have his fucking cake and eat it all too. Hey, like, you no, know, he can have all the cake he wants as far as I'm concerned. His Venom performance is, I, I, I can't say anything else other than like, it is worth it's worth it. It's, it's worth, worth those it. movies. It's worth those <laughs> it's movies. Worth those movies. Um, but anyway, no, Tom Hardy is good in, in the, like he, yeah. He is just like a really, really solid sci-fi bad guy mm-hmm. in these films. Um, and as far as the character goes, I mean, again, it's not reinventing the wheel. It's doing this thing where he's a clone of Picard, and they can I say like well, I'm gonna I'm just gonna say what he is. Like, unless like did you you want no, to no, say no, go ahead, go ahead. So like the idea is is that at one point, like the Romulans planned on cloning Picard and then they were going to kill or capture Picard and place this clone in their place. And it was, that was going to be like essentially like their mole on the inside. It was, yeah. Kind of like a, uh, a clone Picard. Yeah. And then at some point, like as Shinzon says, like, you know, Romulan governments change all the time. And then, then there was a change in the government and then they abandoned that program. They sent this clone to, their prison mine, and that's where the 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 Remans is that what they're called? Yeah, the Remans. Yeah, the re. That's where like a Reman, like a Reman, and uh, some of his followers found him, and then they raised him, and then the, and to this point of him being a villain, and now he's enacting his plan. But that's like kind of his whole ordeal. So the the whole character is all about like he's got he. It's the it's the classic. I'm a clone. I have my own agenda, but I'm also going through all of my shit about being a clone 
So I kind of have that, like, I kind of want to know who I am. I kind of want to be a normal person, but I'm too much of a dick to be. Like, so it's like, it's all of that stuff. It's not reinventing the wheel, but it's all done solidly well. And Tom Hardy's a good guy to play it. Absolutely. And, and again, I just think that what really makes it is the fact that Hardy's given that like like the the over the topness and, and, and like the scene shorey stuff that it just makes it an engaging watch i think it's just it just makes it fun and like when he does to that scenery in scenes with picard it works very well Mm -hmm. you know again it's sort of like he has this sort of you know energy where you can see how he's pulled people into his web you know we we kind of before they land on the planet like you know they were like this guy is not really known you know we don't really know much about the remans we know that he you know was was on that planet that they used them in the Dominion War that he was a he's a well sought out like military leader that fought in like 10 battles but like nobody really knows who he is there's this whole history to him and then they have this whole again this scene in darkness where he like knows everything about Picard and like that's the whole thing about his character he's like I think I know what Picard's thinking I know like I, I've studied you I know how you how you move I know everybody on the Enterprise because like I am you and I just like the, the moment where is he's shrouded in darkness for the whole you know, for most of this sort of introduction and eventually is like, you know, let me, let me illuminate the situation. He like, he, you know, makes some light pun, but he, he raises the lights and then Picard immediately knows like, that's a young me, you know? And he even like, he does the thing where he even like offers his blood, right. And it's like human blood or whatever he offers his blood. It's like, see, like, here's an analysis, like, go, you know, you don't believe me, like, go, go test this essentially. Um, and, and, I, and I do, and I do like the story idea about like, it's, like it's not exactly the face that you remember because he's had a whole different history of right. you know of war and enslavement and everything so it's like i i like just kind of like that as a story right Ex- explain like why he doesn't look exactly what like a young picard would look like but like close enough that it's like yes they're not the same Wait, which but it's also funny because then later on they do he does have a picture of young him and it does just look like they just, <laughs> just like they just do a thing where it's just like slight differences but yeah like very subtle differences yeah, in the yeah, yeah. thing. but it's just like tom hardy in the starfleet uniform which i'm sure again I'm sure even that day filming Tom Hardy and that was like fun. I'm sure you guys have it a blast. Um, but again, they do prove Beverly Crusher, who we haven't really mentioned yet, um, is in the movie as well. Uh, she makes an analysis of the DNA and basically like it is up to the thing. And like even like, you know, Shenzon proves it to Picard because he's like, I had this, you know, disease where I had an issue hearing as a kid and they, 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 they showcased it as like it was a it's a rare genetic disease in the males of a family and, a, and of a bloodline and i bet you had that too didn't you and he's like yeah so picard is you know kind of wrought with sort of like you know you know dealing with the fact that he has like a, a clone that he's basically facing an alternate younger version of himself and that's kind of a big thing throughout the entire movie is you know shenzon his whole deal to picard is like if you were in my situation, if you were, you know, the slave to the Romulans that I was in, this would be you. These would be the decisions you are making. You would be, you know, having the same revenge ideas that I had. And Picard has to deal with like, would I do that? No, I'm, I'm something greater than that. And that's what makes us human, all that sort of, sort of stuff. So that's kind of their big stuff in the movie. And I think there is some really nice stuff. Like they, the Picard, is invited to dinner, which sends on one-on-one. And there is sort of this nice discussion between the two of them about like the history and, and sort of, 
you know, initially reckoning with everything and Picard saying that he, he, it's, you know, he just can't have trust and all that sort of stuff. And I think that's again, just fun stuff between these two characters initially as well. It's just good chemistry, good character stuff. Like it's, it's just nice to kind of see them bounce off each other. Yeah, no, good scene. Um, I like seeing them bounce off each other. All good stuff, solid stuff. And then again, like we we kind of have this thing where again Picard and the Enterprise crew are initially suspicious. We do get a little bit more with um, uh, Shenzhen with his allies in the Romulus military. That you know he's been promising them, hey, like listen, like you promised this action, you promised that we were going to take on the Federation. You keep delaying, like why? Why are we dealing with the Enterprise? And it's just like the and then the mystery of like why there is more to why Shenzhen wants Picard and everything. Mm-hmm. But you know he's like basically like you need to learn patience. I learned patience in the mines. You know when you're being whipped by Romulus like you know guards every every day, you learn to have patience. And then also we get this very distinctive moment where the the female senator that was aligned with them that basically betrayed and killed the rest of her senator brethren tries flirting with him and he immediately like shuts it down and basically is yeah, like he's, he, not, he's not too pleased about it. You you are he, he says you are not a woman you are you are a Romulan which sounds like Jesus damn man and it's like if you ever touch me again I will kill you and then we also get this again this little hint that there's something wrong with him that there's some sort of pain, some sort of stuff that, you know, uh, and Ron Perlman takes good care of him. He's very much like, Hey man, like I'm, I'm at your side. I'm here to help you. But there's some suspicions about what actually is going on here. Yeah. Um, well, it's just, you know, because we're going to be all day if we just kind of bury the lead, but there, but there, there are two big reveals about what's going on Mm -hmm. because, and the only reason I'm bringing up is because they, they do kind of, open it up pretty quickly because yes i was about to mention this yeah yeah because they kind of like get to the point where it's like they can't there's literally characters in the movie they're like all right enough of these games let's just get along with it right um and like eventually you learn that the plan oh well they the plot thickens because then they notice that there's a rare type of radiation emanating from the ship right and essentially like it's like it's a radiation that was banned by the Federation because like of its it's it's basically it's it's bioweapon capabilities. Yeah. And and and, and Beverly Crusher as a ship doctor is like under no I cannot emphasize this enough. That is the most dangerous stuff they could have and that is not a good thing. And and Picard could being, kill everybody on the ship like, like in, in a an matter instant. of yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, instant. And I I again I like looks like the Picards it's like well, that that basically confirms they're not here for peace, like because yeah. there's no explanation if that's the case. So he's immediately like, keep an eye on it. You know, we're kind of figure it out. So so there's that, and then this comes a little bit later, but it, there's really no reason to kind of build up to it. Like the the other reveal is that Shinzon as a clone was designed to have like an accelerated aging process because he was supposed to get to Picard's age like sooner. But because of that, that means like left unchecked now, he's going to die. Right. Because like, basically like they, they, there's like certain like, they, again, sci-fi mumble jumble, basically like time activated DNA where they would like insert stuff to make his body grow faster because he went to Remus and didn't get that stuff. Now he's kind of dying and needs like Picard's blood 
is yeah. the only like savior to like he needs re- like a full blood transfusion from picard in order to survive yes and that's like so and then that, so that's his deal mm-hmm. so throughout the whole movie he's getting more weird and veiny and he's dying and he's getting he's getting more and more tom hardy as it goes along that's his whole deal and then he has this whole business with they're going to use this ship and then the other thing is like the cloaking mechanism on this warbird that they have is like so advanced that they could easily just slip by whoever they want and then get to earth and then destroy the federation yes yeah and uh so then the plot thickens where it's like okay like contact the federation tell them what we know we need to like kind of make sure that radiation doesn't get out of here uh also you know and again shenzon's like kind of almost dying um and it's around it's around this point where shinzon also has a really good line that i like because yeah. at, at one point like I, I think maybe you were building up to this is when they kidnap a card like, we're getting to that okay yes well uh, so all right i'll, I'll wait until we, we have well because there's that. something that happens before they get to picard which is one of the things that we've been oh god yeah teasing that we yeah, have yeah, yeah, we yeah, have yeah. to discuss yeah this. no we do we we have to discuss it so there there's a there's no other way to say it other than there's like a psychic mind rape that happens in the movie yes <laughs> which is like why why is it, it i get it like because at this point they need to do something that really makes him a bastard um it's just so like i okay weird. On a, like, I, there's a there's a point where it's like Yes, like it really just leads up to like Troy basically turning it around on them later to find their hidden ship. But there's way more ways you could do this without resorting to this. Can I? I'll tell you the one thing that actually bothered me about it. Because like the thing is like, okay, maybe it's uncomfortable and whatever. Like, you know, it's like maybe it's just like the villainous thing and they give her the comeuppance at the end, whatever. Not my thing. I don't know what else to say about it. The thing that really bugged me though was that she's like, you know, I, I think I need to be relieved from duty because I think I'm I'm going to be a liability on this ship. And then Picard's like, essentially, he's like, no, you're just going to have to deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, to, to, like, to explain what, what it actually is. So, you know, obviously Riker and Troy, like their, their real wedding has been delayed. And like Riker's like trying to like, you know, he's staying up late and he's trying to figure out this stuff. And it's like, you know, Troy's like, as a ship counselor, I'm telling you, you need some sleep. Let's have a little fun. They get into bed together. Star Trek gets sexy. They start kind of making out. And then all of a sudden, basically like where Riker is, it's Shenzon. And essentially like what we find out is like the Viceroy has like these mental powers like Troy does Mm -hmm. that he's basically like projecting himself into Riker or like in the image in her head. And she's like freaked out. And then it like, you know, he's basically like, man, I'm like, I, I want you as a woman. And he's like, it, it is, it is very much violation. It's very much, it is use the word rape. It is. And she's screaming and crying. And eventually the Viceroy gets involved too, weirdly enough, like, cause she's like fighting it and she's screaming and like Riker has no idea what's going on. And it's so uncomfortable and like wrong. And again, like it, I know what it leads up to, but it just feels like you could have gotten to that point in so many ways without this. And I think I just don't like, it doesn't need, it doesn't need, I know this is going to sound like I, I, I hate it. Cause I know like people are thinking I'm like being prudish about it. It just doesn't need to be a sex scene. No. Like there's so many ways that you can, imply the whole like all right he's like using psychic powers to like invade her mind yes and I, it's just 
it's just such like a the thing about that it's such a massive scene that kind of gets sidelined until a kind of payoff later. right and, and it's also like again just sort of it doesn't really do much it's like it makes deanna troy like sort of a victim character and again like she does get a moment later to try to like push it but right right she is traumatized by it and it, it's one of those things where it's just like it's just so uncomfortable and the one thing and again this isn't with the movie itself like the finished product but the story I have to tell about this too is that after I watched the movie last night I decided to check out the deleted scenes because oh, yes I, was, I do know this that they double down right it, that there's so, more scenes like this yeah right so the thing is like I was just watching it you know there has a couple there's a great scene with Data and Picard at the beginning of the movie that's deleted there's like an alternate ending that's kind of more of a finale ending. There's like the scene with with uh, Will Wheaton that like you get to see. But like the thing is, it's like it's one of those things where there's like a big, you know, like, you know, you've, you've watched DVDs before where there's like, OK, like the producer or director will do a big introduction on it, you know. And one of the things about this one distinctly is like some of the scenes have an introduction and some of them don't. So like Patrick Stewart talks about the scene he has with Data at the beginning or Rick Berman does like a whole thing. The second scene with this sort of deal it immediately opens up with with Stuart Braird a big smile on his face and it's like the first thing out of his mouth is like yeah we originally had two rapes in this movie and we had to oh, cut God. one out and I'm just like that but that really just like that it just gives you the tone of what they felt about that scene that it, you know, it's just like it was like joyfully, like, yeah, we originally had two of them in the movie. Isn't that crazy? Like that they're it just it's like a big whole thing, and it's like not it doesn't seem like an issue, it doesn't seem like something that's wrong. It's just like it is what it is. It reminds and, me and, of when we watched Never Sleep Again, the the Nightmare on Elm Street documentary. Yes. And then they talk about the one scene in one of the Nightmare on Elm Streets where it's like, you know, the woman gets trapped in like the the insane asylum where she gets like, you know, assaulted by like a thousand maniacs or whatever and then like but the way in that they're directing it's like yeah we're you know it's like in some of the some of these guys weren't even actors and she was just really freaked out like she felt really uncomfortable it was great and then you're like yeah oh, it's just like i don't know <laughs> and again it's just like something we're still dealing with a lot of times in terms of how we present this stuff and, and just like the casual nature of like yeah like but again it's like you don't need just like the last thing is like we said like you don't need this to make Shenzon more of a bastard he already is we already get the character it just seems like this is just gravy just to do it to do it and again there is like a slight payoff but you can do that in so many different ways mm -hmm. without it especially this one that they kept in the movie being that sex scene and being that violation during a sex scene it, it just feels so off it just feels like it just doesn't belong yeah yeah yeah, I mean, it, it really is the blemish on an otherwise, because it, it is one of those things like you cannot not remember that it's in the movie. And, you know, I don't want to over like do it. It's not like it's like, I mean, it, it pretty much is just like a scene and it is in a PG-13 movie. So it's not yeah. any worse. Than yeah, that, and it's like, but it's, yeah, it's and not it's my like, favorite part of the movie. Right. It's like, at least there's not really actual like penetration. It's just like more so like, I'm just, I'm just saying that. Like, it's no, I like know, the, I know. At least it's like she's. They do the know, PG-13 version of it. Yeah, yeah, like they just like he's just like she doesn't like you know go as at all, and she's pushing him away, and then there's like a big freak out. But it's still, it's just not necessary, and it just yeah. showcases, just like a, it, it's just like a, 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 
part of a bad history of, of Hollywood with this type of stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah. But like, it's right after this that, like, yeah, Picard gets kidnapped, essentially. Yeah, Picard gets kidnapped. But g- going to a good thing that Shinzon does, uh, Hardy has, like, a great line where, you know, they have just a conversation about one being an original, one being a clone, and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And at one point, I forget the exact line, but like Shinzon says something like, it's like, it's like, it's like this time, like the echo is going to beat the voice or something like that. And yes. I was like, that's a good line. That's yeah. really good. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's, it's a whole conversation where it's just like, you know, again, again, the kind of the clone thing where it's like, as long as you exist, there's no purpose for me. Like, what am I, if you are existing? Cause I am you and there can't be two of us. So essentially like, I'm going to take the blood. I'm going to kill you. And like, then I will showcase like my true self. And then again, he's like taunting. It's like, this is what you would be doing if you were in my shoes and you know it. And I know it. I, I am you, I know you, and I know your decisions. And the whole thing that we find out is that the B4 stuff was specifically planted by Shenzhen to lure Picard into the Romulan neutral zone area so that they would, they'd have to deal with the closest ship that he could, he could get that. Right. Cause Janeway and originally it's like, you're the closest ship there and you had the most experience. So like, you're going to go and do this. So the before we kind of see a scene a little bit earlier too, where we think, okay, they're, they, they are getting before from the ship. They're downloading the data. They're going to get like the memory banks of the, the enterprise computer and data. And they're going to basically like know where all the fleet is. So we kind of, it's okay. We, you know, we have before, you know, we think that's before um, in the, uh, in the movie. So Picard's basically taken hostage and they're like preparing for this blood transfusion. And we find out through uh, data Vulcan neck pinching someone, mm-hmm. um, which I, 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 I do, I do want to point out, he was specifically taught that by Spock in the episode that Spock was in from uh, the next generation. Oh, so cool. that's so, fun. Yeah. So they do a Vulcan next pitch and it's revealed that data basically disguised himself as B4 uh, specifically because he realized like what was happening. Like he, he basically pieced it all together and he's going to help Picard escape from the ship. And originally, and this is again, sort of foreshadowing originally data has like a, a an experimental device from a majority of like a, like a, a, a portable, um, uh, transporter that basically like can can help one person that like, could get back to the ship and Picard's like you're going to use it on me it's like of course and like Dana's going to be like I'll just pretend to be before and I'll still be on the ship and be like what happened and it's like no we'll find a way off this ship together and so basically like he puts it away in, in Dana's arm and they kind of start like sneaking through the ship so um, and this I thought was a fun again a fun sequence it's mm-hmm. again Data and Picard our great characters together they kind of move well together they're kind of sneaking through the ship and everything and they kind of have to like you know do what they can um to get off and i thought this whole sequence was really well put together yeah no i agree it was fun um yeah just fun space shenanigans Mm -hmm. um but yeah so I, i again we get the very villainous thing, but still fun where Shenzhen, like they're going in to like get Picard. They realize he's gone. The guard that was neck pitched was like, is on the ground and Shenzhen's amazing to like kill him. And like, you know, just, they just shoot him. And again, it's just like the nice words. It's like, they just shoot him and he's just like, ah, like, and just dies. And they're like, basically like, all right, well, here we go. We're off to, to, to find Picard. Um, so Yeah. 
I mean, the, it's funny because the movie kind of just, like, it just kind of goes from there. Like, I mean, everything is set in place and then the rest of it happens. Um, Picard, and they kind of realize what the plan, They now they know what the plan is. Picard and Data have, like, a really good conversation about it. And then this is where it comes down to this whole, like, the this moment of... Which I actually thought was like an interesting kind of parallel because earlier I think was it in was it in generations where they were having the conversation about the emotion chip and yes. about like what it mean yeah so there was kind of so this kind of felt like a parallel where Picard was talking data off the off the cliff of like you know in about you know, you can't hide from your, like, your emotions and blah, blah, blah. So I thought that this was a nice parallel where Data was the one to talk Picard off the ledge of, like, you know, being sure of, like, you are your only you, and this is how you know that. And I thought that was, like, a, a good scene between Yeah, them. I did really strong, too, because it's basically, like, because Data's also been reckoning with that as well, especially with, with before here, but it's, like, yes, like, I am me, and, and, and the experiences I've had have made me me, and, but you are you, and you are going to make the decisions you make. Because mm -hmm. the whole thing is that they get transported back onto the ship and, and you know, they kind of sneak across the shuttle and they get transported and they basically like, get the hell out of here as fast as we can. Mm -hmm. we got to get to the Federation, you know. And so this idea is that, okay, they're going to basically, you know, warn the Federation. Data's given him false information about like the whereabouts of everything. So they're going to basically give him the whole fleet. They're going to make it through um, as best they can. And then we have this discussion with everybody. And meanwhile, as well, I should mention real quick that we, we kind of get the final frustrations between Shenzhen and his, and his Romulan supporters where, you know, like they're like, we're, we're, we'll, we have like two days. We'll, we'll like within the two days, the Federation will be done. Does that satisfy you for the moment? And the rest of the Romulans, you know, the, the Romulan center that again has been kind of involved in this is basically like you are, you are a proud Romulan. You are not like someone who's going to, you know, support genocide and annihilation like he's not just gonna you know make this empire great he's going to kill everybody he's going well, to and, and this is the level of nuance that i did enjoy because it was about like it's not about like conquest or like anything like that he's gonna like create these essentially a genocide and i just thought it was interesting it's like is that what you want like this race to be known as. right like he's like is this is that the thing you want on your children is that the thing you want on your bloodline essentially right. that like the, the 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 people the romulans that come after us will grow up in that society is that and, something and, I, you want? and I, I thought that was kind of like a neat like just a very uh, just a very human like you know they're not humans but you get what i mean it was just like a very like pure like yeah. nuanced uh, take on that I, I liked right but and Shenzhen at this point is like yes that's still his plan but he he's kind of again making Picard his his white whale right like, again that parallel of like Picard with the Borg that we see in uh in first contact now more and more as the movie goes on Shenzhen is kind of more visually focused on Picard and making sure Picard if he doesn't save him, doesn't make it out alive. Because mm -hmm. uh, this is where we get sort of a, a rather lengthy sort of final battle slash third act. Like when you look at it, it's like a 45, almost 50 minute like thing when we get to this point where they've contacted the Federation. The Federation are waiting at this specific point. They're going to rendezvous and, and kind of start like a big ass battle. They start having this the discussion that we've kind of talked about and everything. 
and they, they kind of go through um, this specific uh, area of space, the Basin Rift, where they realize extremely quickly that, oh, communications are going to be un- impossible because there's kind of instant, you know, issues. And we get this like nice little sequence where, you know, Shenzhen ship and the Viceroy, they're right on top of them. And they're like, how long will it take us to reach the Enterprise? Seven minutes. And then we cut immediately the Picard and Data. It's like, how long will it take us to reach our, our, our rendezvous? And it's like 40 minutes at our current pace. But I, again, I like immediately that as soon as they realize like, oh, like we're not going to have communications with uh, Starfleet, Picard immediately like knows like, okay, we're in trouble and he like just like put the shields up, but it's kind of too late that that the uh, you know Shenzhen ship is sort of is is, is attacking them at full strength. Uh, we get the Romulans um, contacting them, and I like this too, where Picard immediately is like, "Oh, we're into deep shit now." When he's like on screen, mm-hmm. and then when the run the Romulan the the senator comes up and she's like, uh, "Would you like some assistance, Captain?" And immediately Picard's like, "Oh," like he's like, "Huh, interesting." Well, and then it's it's a nice beat because Picard did have on his mind that like you know if if a piece could come from this, that would be awesome. Like yeah. he is always about that. So the fact that even there was some form of allyship between them and Romulans was like something that warmed his heart was just like a nice little beat. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we get kind of this first sort of major part of this space battle between the Romulan ships, between the Enterprise and between Shenzhen's ship. Uh, Eventually some of the Romulan ship goes down, the Enterprise gets invaded by some of the Remans um, where kind of Riker and Worf and, and some of the ground crew are kind of, you know, fighting them um we also get picard uh basically the 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 view screen gets obliterated at one point um where you know like it's gonna you know it it opens a hole in the ship it kind of gets sucked into space before like it gets like kind of fixed essentially but there's still a big hole in the ship that gives them a right direct inclination of like outside space um this is also where we get the payoff to sort of Deanna Troy's whole thing with with the uh, with her with her mental connection, yeah, quote unquote. She, she she pulls off like a psychic attack on. Oh, because they're cloaked and they can't see them, so they're like, you know, it's kind of like cheating Can, in Battleship. Right. Yeah. So she basically reverses the connection on the Viceroy. And the vice was like, oh, like she's invading my mind now. And it's like, can you locate them? Like, give me a second. It's like. And then her whole thing is like, don't you forget me. Like, that's her, like, line to him. And then eventually they find it and it's like, that's it. And, like, boom, they start attacking him. So there's kind of the big the big thing with that. Um, so, so. Yeah, so they get so they get him and then um, and then do they crash the, the Enterprise? Is yeah, so, so basically they're both kind of like, the Enterprise is essentially, like, there's the big thing where it's like the Enterprise is essentially, like, kind of very damaged um, at, even after their attack, like the, the Shenzhen ship only has like 72% damage and, you know, like still has full photon torpedoes and, and like basically full attack that they can do. Whereas like the enterprise is like basically empty on, on stuff they can use, but it's Picard that again, realizes that like, like, why aren't they attacking us? Like, why is he just there? Cause the ship's uncloaked now. Mm-hmm. And he, Picard basically realizes he wants to look me in the eye. He's expecting me to do this one thing. Like he's like, I, I, he, he thinks he knows what I'm going to do. 
So basically he does the thing that Shenzhen would not expect him to do, which is essentially, um, again, the ship is a derelict, but he basically, Picard tells Jordy like, put all you can into the thrusters. And he even uses the line, take some off life support if you need to, like put everything you can conceivably into the thrusters. And so basically Picard's plan is he goes full speed ahead into Shenzhen's ship and essentially crashes the Enterprise directly into it. And I thought this was great. Mm-hmm. I thought this was really cool. I thought it was like unique. I thought it was a fun wrinkle on sort of the Enterprise crashes we've seen before in these films. The effect looked great. And it was it's impressive that it was basically all practical uh, of models just really crashing into each other. Uh, I thought it was like kind of a nice bookend of, again, Picard being like, he's expecting me to do one thing. He's expecting me to late. Like he thinks he knows who I am because he thinks he's Picard. And especially earlier, you know, after their discussion with, after his discussion with Data, um, Shenzhen appears as a hologram in Picard's office. And they basically, Picard is like one last sort of appeal of like, you know, you can be something greater. Like you, if you say you are me, I know you can be me. I know you can be better than you are. That's what makes us human. And Shenzhen basically is doubling down. It's like, I can't be anything more than I am. And I am someone who is going to destroy everything. Like that's what has been leading to me. So it's a kind of a nice moment of Picard basically being like, I'm finally showing you that like, I am not, we are not the same. You do not know who I am. Like I can be surprising too. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it does lead to, basically Shenzhen pulling like essentially essentially pulling a con in the sense of like well if I can't win then we're all gonna die we're all gonna die I'm gonna yeah. I, like it really it, does that really is a con m- m- move. right so instead of activating the Genesis device he essentially activates his radiation yeah that like well he won't make it to earth to do so basically will destroy and he also like it's also implied he has like minutes to live him, himself right and, and it's yeah. still one of those things where Picard still needs to go on the ship and basically ensure that Shen's, uh, that like, you know, they do what they can to have everybody survive. So basically, they only have enough transporter power to transport, you know, him to the ship. But he's essentially like, look, look listen, get out of here as best you can. I'm going to, you know, finish off Shenzhen and, you know, do what I can to basically make sure that you, you guys survive. Um, and again, I want to mention that like I was kind of surprised at how lengthy this was, but what I kind of still liked is that it still kept up the momentum, that mm-hmm. it never felt like, it, to go back in our podcast history, it never felt like a Geigen where it just, Geigen, if you remember that, that third act, it's 40 minutes and it's just slog, it's along because there's really nothing happening. This one, it's like, it is like 45, 50 minutes into this, like the final battle is very lengthy, but it, it really doesn't drag that much i think there are some moments where especially some of the space stuff you know maybe you could have like like tweaked it a little bit to be a little bit better but essentially you know it's it's there so yeah um, i i had no notes i i enjoyed the whole thing yeah but essentially like the end of the movie is this it's picard and, and shenzhen have their battle uh on the on on shenzhen's ship eventually picard does kill him with the 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 pole and there's an, again, that's the nice little last beat of these characters where Senjon pulls himself in closer to Picard to give him one last look in the face. Meanwhile, Data realizes like he can't let the captain go. So he basically jumps from ship to ship in a, in a pretty I like cool that mo- moment he has with Jordy. Like he the like, whole, like, he doesn't say what he's going to do, but Jordy is like, all right, I got, I got your back. And yeah. And I like that that moment between them had no dialogue either. 
Right. It's just the moment. Basically, like they kind of do a thing where they open up a hole. They put the like little thing there. You know, they open it and then data jumps to the other ship. He essentially like uses that um, instant transport device on Picard, you know, shuts down the core enough that it just explodes him and the ship, not the Enterprise. They watch the ship explode and then they return around to see Picard there and realize that data made the sacrifice Mm -hmm. and again just a nice moment with the crew where they all kind of reflect on data so so this was the thing and because this is something that i actually do even movies i like i i think get this wrong a lot but like there is like at the end of the movie everybody's bummed yes like it it really is like it's sad like everybody's super upset that this that their their comrade died and I do think that, unfortunately, it, 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 again, in movies I like, that there is a tendency to rush past that mourning period mm-hmm. uh, in a movie where everybody just ends, where it's like, oh, okay, but, like, you know, that, that was really sad. But, you know, we're on to another day where this movie does have kind of, like, a, a sadness to its ending. Like, yeah. it's not a bummer ending, but, like, people, like, I was surprised by how much they spent that, like, all the characters are upset about it. Yeah. And I, and I like that. Yeah. There are movies that get this wrong. Cough, amazing Spider-Man two cough. Um, <laughs> but it's just, again, it's nice. And like, and again, you get Riker referencing the first episode where uh, data's, you know, he meets data whistling pop goes the weasel, but he can't remember this, the, the tune that he was whistling, right. but they all like, are like, have this, this relationship with data and they do get to toast him and everything. That's nice. Like that too. Um, and then essentially like we get back to, dry dock you know the, the day is saved Riker does his transfer there is a really nice moment between the two of them and it's like when your first officer tells you not to go on the away missions you tell him no like you basically do what you need to do and so they kind of head off uh, Picard tries to explain to before like what data sacrifice meant mm-hmm. before still doesn't understand but we still get a little hint that you know data's ability to transfer his memory may have worked because b4 starts singing blue skies mm-hmm. and picard walks away from the office with a small smirk on his face that things might turn out okay and i like this little moment i just want to mention this real quick the low score moment where goldsmith plays like the bars of blue skies like on the piano and then it transitions into the original star trek theme mm-hmm. like i th- i thought that was a really nice like musical moment there yeah uh I- just a solid movie all around i thought i really did i really thought it was a lot better than its reputation beheld i I, I was not expecting to enjoy it yeah i think i remembered from my 2018 view that i thought at that time it was better especially than insurrection which was my lowest but even this time i grew to appreciate a a much of its of its runtime so uh, a definitely sort of a, a a a good sort of ending to this era you know not the not the strongest but still pretty good mm-hmm. um just to quickly wrap up um the movie and in this era of trek because it is kind of a, a big thing uh the movie uh releases uh in the november uh 2002 um or sorry december 2002 excuse me um it, it's kind of like finished up in november de- premiered december 13 2002 and bombed hard uh, on a $60 million budget, its worldwide box office was $67.3 million, and it's the first time since these Star Trek movies have been coming out that it did not finish number one at the box office the weekend it came out. That, of course, went to uh, Made in Manhattan. Um, and then the next weekend was Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, 
Uh, and uh, Star Trek Generations at the time was noted as the biggest drop off from week to week in studio history uh, with an 89% drop after Two Towers came out. And essentially, it was just that was just it. That was going to be it for Star Trek because there was plans um, that uh, Berman and uh, Berman and Spiner and uh, Logan had had at, towards the end of production concocted plans for a finale Star Trek Next Generation movie that there were no specific plans involved, but probably would have featured characters from from Next Generation Voyager and Deep Space Nine would have been the culmination of the Beverly Crusher and Picard relationship. And in some sense would have been a combination of Star Trek three search for Spock in a resurrection of data and Star Trek six um, undiscovered country where it was just sort of a finale for the characters, but essentially Paramount said that, okay, Star Trek has, as franchise fatigue that this movie bond because people have done too many of these Star Trek movies in a row. So they basically shut down basically all the Star Trek stuff for a really good time. And even the Enterprise show that was on the air was doing very poorly. It got canceled not too long after this. Star Trek or Paramount sold off a bunch of their Star Trek props, took down all the sets. And for a long time, there was just nothing new Star Trek on the horizon. And it was like Paramount saying, we need a break. We need some. We need a break from this. Eventually, someday we'll go back to it. But for now, for the foreseeable future, no more Star Trek. And this would be the end of the next generation crew until the Picard show last year in 2020. Um, and, uh, you know, and then a couple of the characters got to reappear on that show. But uh, essentially with the Calvin verse, and we'll talk about that next time, being so focused on the original series, this was really for a long time the true finale of this sort of peak era of Star Trek television of next generation and Deep Space Nine and Voyager. This was sort of the end uh, of an era that so many people uh, held close to their chest. Uh, over the years, there are some appreciations for this movie, especially for the young performance of Tom Hardy that people do appreciate. Uh, Hardy said that after this bot movie bombed, he broke up with his girlfriend. He became an alcoholic. Uh, oh, no. and yeah, he's got all of his yeah, demons. Yeah. And then basically, he kind of had his big comeback in around 2008 and eventually got back into franchise filmmaking through Christopher Nolan. So. Um, but there was a very big period of his life where it was a kind of dark turns for him after this movie failed for him. But uh, he reflects on this movie highly and, and said he had a good time doing That's it. That's what's so frustrating about like, I don't know. I've been very just frustrated with just even modern day film discourse, just in yeah. general, which I won't get into. But it does make film discourse like frustrating, especially with a movie like this, because it does have this legacy that it's like so like and it, it that this is just how people think about it but then you want it's like it's fine yeah at, at worst it's fine it definitely has like the reputation <laughs> you know what i mean it's like at worst it's like not even like mm -hmm. like i can like i and again you know we can talk about the, the the franchise overall which may be something we actually may want to get into i don't know if i, I have the time today unfortunately but it's not even the worst of these. No, it I really think. isn't. I think it's a lot of, again, just reflection. And, and again, it's just become, especially in the era this came out, like that early into like, you know, internet kind of getting bigger and bigger, right? Like there is a sense of just like, you kind of get the more people tell you what the movie is or you kind of right, right. take a glance at like what people think, oh, this was the worst. Oh, this Rotten Tomato score, yada, yada, yada. And it's like, when you actually see the film, 
there's so there's a lot to actually take in and enjoy. And um, people don't think that's a real thing. I I often tell this story that that the whole kind of implicit bias of what you've heard about a movie really affects and everybody thinks like, no, they'll just look at it and they'll know, but they really do. And my go-to story for that real quick is that I remember taking a buddy to see M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable, which no matter what, wherever you stand on any of his movies, everybody kind of considers that to be in like the era of like, when he where everybody loved his movies i mean it was right off of like his you know the success which was like the hottest thing in the world but you could just tell that people were jumping at the chance in the audience to like either mock or laugh at like whatever choice Mm -hmm. and you could just you got that feeling from it and we just could just tell it was because everybody was told that you just should make fun of m night Shyamalan movies Mm -hmm. i i feel that way to this day about that specifically. And it kind of applies to here where I, you know, like I went into it thinking like, oh yeah, this is like a lackluster kind of tedious movie. And I found it to be anything but. Yeah. No, and I think it's something that I definitely have reckoned with over the years where even I've had movies where it's like, I've kind of crapped on a movie because, oh, this, you know, it kind of has this reputation. But the more you watch movies, I think, and the more I think is also just like nothing's ever good and ever bad. And I think especially I, I also think that there was sort of a, a, a longer lasting legacy where because this was the last for a while that it kind of even grew. It was like this killed Star Trek. There was that kind of reputation. Mm-hmm. And now that we're past it, we're kind of in a new era of like embracing Trek. And it's like there's more Star Trek projects than there's really ever been since this era. Mm-hmm. You can kind of really take this movie a little bit differently that it's not the end of track and it's yeah. not even the end of the next generation anymore. So I think there, you can kind of have that in your mind. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Let's uh, so next time on star Trek, we're out of the original film era and into again, as we mentioned the ever discussed partially controversial JJ Abrams, Calvin timeline era. We are going into the modern day of franchise filmmaking. Once again, as we talk about 2009's star Trek, um, which again, that whole era, I, I have, I wonder if I'll have any different opinions now that I've really re dug into these. I'll be very interested to see that, but our next mainline episode is going to be pirates of the Caribbean. Another end of an era. We are ending the original pirates trilogy and to many people ending the good set of pirate films. Uh, We will be talking about Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, uh, which again, being able to talk about that whole trilogy has been a blast, and I can't wait to do the next one. And don't worry, again, we've been very busy. No Time to Die is coming, I promise. So we kind of have an update on this. We may be able to easily do this. Because really, I, I have to say, it really has been a scheduling thing. It has like, been a schedule, yeah. I'm I'm shocked by actually how much of a scheduling nightmare it is to, has been to go watch movies. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like it really, because both of us are doing stuff. It, it it gets difficult, kids, when the older you get. Yeah. It, it, it does get tough. But like, imagine, imagine if you and I were, like, married with kids. Oh, it would be, it would be like, impossible. I, I now understand like yes. when all everybody older that I know is like, oh, I can't get to the movies. And I get it. I get it now. I, I, mean, uh, I don't entirely get it, but I right. I, yeah. So it has literally been a scheduling thing. We're both eager to kind of see it. We've heard many people want to hear our opinions. It is coming hopefully sooner than later. The, yeah. the, the digital and releases and everything might be coming very shortly. Uh, so we'll try to keep you updated. That'll hopefully be coming soon. But in the meantime, let's wrap this up. Let's get out of here. 
bonzillapod at gmail.com, facebook.com slash bonzilla007, uh, twitter.com slash bonzilla007, like and subscribe, iTunes and SoundCloud. I always appreciate we're getting more tweets about people listening, even people, new people discovering the podcast, going back to our Bond and Godzilla episodes. We really appreciate it. We really love listening. These new episodes have been a blast. Our old episodes are a blast. So thanks again. Absolutely. Cannot wait. All right. Well, that's it. Let's wrap this up. We'll see you next time on Bonzilla Presents. Bye-bye. Never saw the sun shining so bright. Never saw things going so right. Noticing the days hurrying by. When you're in love, my how they fly, oh blue.